Hello, retro movie lovers. Welcome back to the 1980s Movie Graveyard. We're so excited this week. We got a cult classic, just a plain classic, actually, I would say. And I got a special uh, movie gravedigger co-host. You know the man. You've heard him on this show before. You've also heard him on Days of Future podcast, which is a podcast strictly covering the phenomena of the X-Men. And, as always, he can always be caught about every two and a half months on If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. <laughs> Everybody, welcome back to the show, Trev3K, a.k.a. my buddy Trevor. Trevor, hey. what's going on? Oh, not too much, Goat. Thanks for having me back to dig up this. Uh, you want to, so You just want to call us a Stone Cold Classic, huh? <laughs> yeah, just, you know, I was, you know, all cult classic for variety This is a classic. I mean, I think... You know, we're we're we're, we're going to talk about the warts and all. Don't get me wrong, but I, there's so much in this movie that goes so deliciously wrong that I think it actually maybe this film maybe expi- you know inspired some of the really big hack filmmakers of today. Well, I will say one thing rewatching it for the show is that it is the it feels like the perfect movie to do here because this is honestly a film that could only happen in the '80s. This oh, okay. this movie just reeks of '80s madness. It it really does, and I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get into it. We we'll get into it. So let's just jump into it here because there's this is actually not not a short film, so we might as well just jump into it. And we got a lot of stuff to discuss, and I kind of want to get it rolling here. Um, okay, here's the lowdown on this film. There's three different versions of this movie throughout the years that have been released, either in theaters, uh, international theaters, DVD, whatever. Okay. The American theatrical cut of this movie was about 90 minutes and some change. That version doesn't exist anywhere. You could technically probably, what, get an old-ass VHS from the 80s. But for the DVD release, there's the international version, which is two hours and uh, about five minutes long, which is what we're doing. And then there's a director's cut, which is like, what, Trev, closer to uh, maybe two hours, 20 minutes? Yeah, something like that. It's like an additional 15 or so, yeah. Yeah. So if you have the two-disc version that came out from anchor bay this is the shorter version of the movie if you have the version from warner brothers uh which is what i'm watching the movie on uh that's just a one disc don't worry you're you know that this is what you got here the two hour two hours four minutes and 40 seconds version aka the international version and don't worry either way it's gonna feel like four hours (laughs) it really will feel like four hours so uh, the versions of this that we have there's no real like opening studio logos they're just the credits of the movie so we literally have this pause at just the one second mark. Um, so get your DVD, you know, go through the menu, basically hit play. When I say one, two, three, go. We haven't even said the title of the movie yet. <laughs> we haven't, but it, it, come on. It's Supergirl. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's Supergirl. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Smoking is not permitted in this auditorium. It's the law. Please be considerate and don't talk during the show. (laughs) All right, everybody, get ready to watch Supergirl. When you hear me say go, hit play. Everybody, Supergirl. One, two, three, go. All right. Here we go. And uh, first of all, while these credits are going on, let's. You want to explain a little bit who the Salkines are, or the Salkins? I'm not sure how you pronounce their names. Well, I got Alexander and Ilya Salkind, right? Uh, Kind of. uh, What are they? Mexican? Is that what they are? I know. I think Ilya was born in Mexico. 
But I'm not sure where Alexander was originally from. Honestly, I have no clue for, um, <clears throat> excuse me, fans. For some reason, if you go to Wikipedia, this is listed as a British film. Mm. So I don't, I really don't know where they, you know, where they, their whatever lies. But um, just to explain how insane this was, who these people were, these were film producers. They got the um, rights to Superman, which everybody knows is owned by Warner Brothers. This would never happen today. No. Never happen with all these, you know, superhero films that are coming out. But these people, they got the rights away. The first couple Superman movies did come out for Warner Brothers. Then they broke off, I think, with Superman... Well, actually, after the flop or whatever happened with Superman 3, they tried to you know, re-energize the franchise with this movie, which this is a character that technically Warner Brothers owns, but Warner Brothers would not distribute this film, would they? No. Well, I guess, from what I understand, when the Salkinds bought the rights to Superman, at, even at that time, they, they bought the rights to Supergirl as well. Right. So they were just kind of sitting on it, and then after right. Superman 3 fell apart, like you said, they were just kind of like, well, shit, let's try this instead. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I guess technically... This could be like how Sony was holding Spider-Man hostage from yeah. Marvel, but I mean, other than that, you really wouldn't see this thing. So yeah, so th- this was actually this was in be- this film Supergirl came out in between Superman three and four. They thought this was going to re-energize, and I don't know if they were just going to you know do a Supergirl spinoff series or if they're going to cross them or what. But they really thought this was going to be a franchise unto itself, and it was also going to you know re-energize the Superman brand. And unfortunately, that didn't happen at all. <laughs> No. As a matter of fact, if you watch this expecting like a film that feels like the Superman films, these opening credits are about as good as it's going to get for you. Yeah. This is really the only moment that really even feels like the Christopher Reeve movies. Yeah. Which, like, I don't, I mean, I'm sure they probably just did this to brand it with, with those uh, Christopher Reeve films. But like, yeah, like you said, I mean, even the way they, they approach the special effects of Supergirl flying is like way different. Yeah. But yeah, so basically, you know, this director's cut that was super fucking long came out at some point, like, within the last 15 years. Then there was the international version, which is what we're watching now. And then it's, like, Columbia TriStar, who finally picked the rights up to show this in America, they realized kind of how overly long and plodding this film was. They cut, like, a half hour out of it. Yeah, and I, you know, I have vague memories of seeing this in the theater when I was, like, four years old for some reason, but... I kind of wish I could travel back to my four-year-old brain and remember what that cut is like, because certainly this cut is... You feel the length of this international cut. Oh, yeah. And, like, I mean, I'll be straight up, uh, listeners, for, um, you know, compared to the other commentaries we've done on the 1980s movie, I'm going to be, like, a lot more negative on this film than other other ones we covered. But I just want to make it clear. I don't hate this movie. I liked watching this movie. Mm -hmm. It just... It, 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 I don't know. It just tests your patience. I'll put it that way. It does. It's one of those films that's fun to watch, though, because of how ridiculous it is. Like, maybe right. more so than how we genuinely enjoy some of the other films you've covered here. This is kind of a campy get-together-your-buddies and, and right. drink and watch it. But there are things to actually like in it. Um, you know, lead, the lead performance being one of them. But there's some other elements that we'll talk about. And then here we go. Like, first of all, though, this is a movie that just don't care in a lot of elements. Yeah. And, I mean, talk about an odd opening, too, where they just, like, throw you right into, like, Argo City here, and they don't explain anything. Like, you're like, wait, is this Krypton? When is this, is this, did it not blow up? They never tell you how this city, like, survived the destruction of Krypton. They just don't care. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because you know more about the comic book. Well, from what I gathered from um, um, Wikipedia, this was, like, a crystal, like, kind of like a space station, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, like anything, there's been multiple, you know, retcons of this over and over. Like, at some point, Sargo City is just a city that's been captured by Brainiac and is kind of kept in a little glass jar, you know. But here we have, yeah, it seems to be, like, I guess to go with the idea that before the destruction, they were able to kind of seal this this city off in its own little pocket dimension. Because they talk about here they're not in outer space, they're in inner space. Right. I don't know if this is where Lucas got the Indiana Jones 4 ideas from or what. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah. Like, like, let, let's explain this this city for the you know the the folks who unfortunately are not following along with the which I'm uh, guessing is most of them. Yeah, we, we, I'm guessing because, but this is basically like if people you know were like in you know like we said inner space outer space it, it's a space station but it's like if people designed the space station to basically look like a big waxy like honeycomb and that's what they wanted to live in. <laughs> yeah, and everyone looks really. Like happy to be in there too, and even yeah. though just, there's there's much to do. I mean, here we have Peter O'Toole playing with some kind of like dildo or something. But. Yeah, like like I wanted to kind of point out the chintziness here of these uh, props. Like Peter O'Toole, like I I'm not even like uh, listeners. I'm not even trying to be like overly like jokey, but this really does look like some wand you would get off of Adam, AdamandEve.com and like stick up <laughs> <Yeah>. your ass. <laughs> really, you know, like people thought uh, what's his name Spacey was like stroking those. Uh, you know, kryptonite uh, daggers, like, so weird, like, in uh, Superman Returns. But Peter O'Toole, I think, set the stage. Like, Yeah. like I love, to like, Peter O'Toole's outfit. It just looks like he's wearing, like, a, like some kind of, like, cardigan sweater or something. You know, it's, this is, so this is the Krypton wear now, I guess? Yeah. Everyone's just dressed so casually. And, and this does seem like a different um, society than what we saw Krypton in the movies. Like, this almost seems like a utopia compared, you know what I mean? <laughs> It's really weird, too, because there's some dialogue that insinuates, and later on there's more, that they can kind of watch Earth because mm-hmm. they know that Kal-El has gone on to become Superman on Earth. Right. And they, they, I mean, she certainly knows it later. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, like, again, there's, just, there's so much stuff that's not made clear, and I think they just didn't give a damn. They're like, well, our audience is not going to stop and think about this. And maybe they're right at the time, but, you know, we're a more critical <laughs> comic book movie-watching audience nowadays. Exactly. Speaking of Argo City, like... This almost <laughs> shades of the Argo, the failed science fiction film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I, we got to explain this for because this is batshit insane and like it was even kind of like throwing me for a loop watching this the other night. Is we have the you know okay we said Pierre O'Toole has a dildo which he clearly does, but the dildo is like a way to control this kind of glowing metallic tennis ball which this tennis ball is like basically like a tiny nuclear reactor. I mean yeah, correct- so the Omega Hedron. Yeah, yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm getting all this shit wrong because this is just my impression of it. Now keep in mind this. Um, Tennis ball is the power source for this entire city, and they're just fucking around with it like it's a dog toy or something. And like basically, Supergirl here, who, who by the way, like this isn't you know for people kind of not familiar with the you know how this character works. This isn't like um, you know like like the X Men where people are born with superpowers. These people, because of the atmosphere they're in, they don't even know that they're super beings or whatever. It's not until they get to Earth that the Earth Sun like energizes them right trev right so i mean at this point you know i'm going to keep saying supergirl but it's not really supergirl it's just basically some ditzy 16 year old girl here yeah cara zorel cara zorel yeah and she basically like you can make whatever you want 
like with this dildo and this tennis ball, she makes like a plastic uh, giant mosquito. <laughs> yeah, it's buzzing around right now. And in a moment, it's going to like bust through the wall of the space station, yeah. which is like, are you kidding me? You're in space and your walls are made out of like saran wrap? Look how <laughs> easy that was. It literally, <laughs> it literally is saran wrap. And like, like if you were playing catch in here and someone didn't catch the ball, everyone would die, essentially. Yeah, and like basically the tennis ball like flew out. You know, it's going to fly through space and eventually make its way to Earth. But, you know, this is this is the, uh, you know... And talk about a blink-and-you-missed-it type role here. Um, uh, Supergirl's mom is played by Mia Farrow. Like, why yeah. did they even bother to pay Mia Farrow for this role? Like, she's barely in it. She barely really, she, says anything. When I, you, you watch this film, and at the beginning you think, oh, they just got Peter O'Toole and Mia Farrow for these kind of brief cameos. But Peter O'Toole, he comes back. Mia Farrow's just here for, like you said, no reason. I guess, well, she probably just needed money to hire more bodyguards to protect her from Frank Sinatra. <laughs> That's true. She figured the most safe place was, I gotta get it on a film set where there's gonna be hundreds of you know extras, <laughs> you know, big crew, big set. That way, you know, plenty of people around Frank won't be yeah. able to whack me anymore. Yeah, where will he never find me on a set of Supergirl? No one even knows this movie's being made. Yeah. And, like, I want to bring this up and kind of get your perspective on this, Trev. But, like, okay, you know, we're watching this movie for about five minutes here. This movie, you know, aside from the ill-fated, whatever, Superman 4, Quest for Peace, like, this movie came after Superman 1, 2, and 3, which, correct me if I'm wrong, that series started in the mid-70s and went through kind of like the mid to late 80s. -hmm. But somehow, is it just me, but photography-wise, this movie actually looks older, if not just as old as the very first Superman it, I'd say it looks the same as the first Superman, but like I said, that's still like it's but, you know. But it's like eight years later than yeah, the first Superman. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's really hard. like you you only know that this is in the same continuity from like the small like, if you kind of know anyways. But then there's only the smallest references. But otherwise, this is just such a different kind of movie. I mean, everything we're seeing happening on screen now doesn't feel like it belongs in the universe of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. No, I mean, I, I mean, well, I mean, you can look at the. Reeves franchise and uh, see kind of where it fell apart after Dick Donner wasn't involved anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just looking at kind of what happened with this this film, the, the, the next Superman film, Quest for Peace, I think it definitely shows that Superman as a film franchise was the Dick Donner show back then. Yeah. Yeah, and like, uh, well, basically... Peter O'Toole, there's no way Peter O'Toole has any idea what he's talking about. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, you know what? I gotta say, though, I mean, obviously, getting Peter O'Toole in this film was a move to try to class it up. And I have to say, like, you know, you didn't really get too much here in this opening scene, but when him and uh, Helen Slater are together later, they have a pretty good chemistry for they a do, you know, old man and a young girl. And that's something I'll say about Peter O'Toole is that as as drunk as he always was, and right. as little as I'm sure he cared about this movie, he's not the kind of guy who just phones it in. Mm-mm. And he and he is actually doing some pretty decent work in this movie. Yeah. Oh, now we're in 2001 suddenly here. Yeah, I want to comment on this because, you know, she feels like it was her responsibility because she made the cellophane mosquito who who blew out the atmosphere, you know, uh, of uh, Argo City. So she jumps into, like, basically, like, it looked almost like a swinging, like, everything about this movie is so swinging 70s, even though it's, like, made in 1983, came out in 1984, that's what I don't get, but uh, she jumps in this, like, lounge seat, like, bubble chair, like, it transforms into, like, literally a flying bubble, she flies out into space, but outer space looked nothing like, well, again, 
let me correct myself. It's not outer space. It's inner space. But how would you describe that? Like a like a lamp oil. Thing? Yeah, she's, like, like, she's basically flying through a lava lamp. Is right, right, right. It's, it's, it's just yeah. it's clearly liquid bubbles, like green screened in, you know, blue screened in. It's a very, very strange choice. Very psychedelic, trippy. And, and here, and I have to say, this is the aspect of the film that really threw me for a loop. Is when we're now introduced to the main two villainous characters here. A witch played by Faye Dunaway, and then her warlock boyfriend, who, I don't know, the, this is just such, such a, you know, Faye Dunaway, even at this time, you know, still a very good looking woman, still probably known as a movie star, like, I'm not familiar with this actor who plays her kind of sidekick boyfriend, whatever, but are you oh, fucking Peter, kidding me? Peter Cook, he's a pretty, like, famous British actor. Is he? Yeah, he's the uh, the priest who does the wedding in uh, Princess Bride. Oh, okay, okay. But fuck, his teeth are so bad, man. And, and, <laughs> well, he's British. What do you want? <laughs> but I mean, Faye Dunaway is like so glamorous, even in this movie, playing a villain. You know what? Like Peter, what he's mostly known for is he, him, and Dudley Moore were like a big comedy team. Oh, okay. Back, yeah. Was he an Arthur at all? Uh, I don't know. I know they were like bedazzled together. Mm. Um, I'm not sure about uh, Arthur, but. But they were like a comedy duo in their younger days. But yeah, this is a uh, so really briefly though, like you said, so he's like a warlock, she's a witch, and they are the main villains of the film. And that's actually sort of interesting because something that never really got brought up into the Superman films, not even still to this day, is in the comics one of Superman's big weaknesses is he can't deal with magical characters. Yeah. His powers are kind of nullified by magic, and this is so here like is the only Superman continuity movie that addresses that somewhat. Right, we have Supergirl; he's taking on a witch and a warlock. Not that they do a lot with it, but hey. And talking about, uh, uh, you know, shit luck. <laughs> the the magic tennis ball, which, you know, has infinite power or whatever, it, it landed in not only the picnic here, they're in a park, the picnic of a witch and a warlock, but it landed in their nacho cheese dip. It did. <laughs> and, like, the thing that's funny is, like, to clean the nacho cheese dip off, Faye Dunaway goes to the car and, like, and, like, I guess she's kind of using it to fuck with the uh, radio here, but it almost looks like she's holding up to, like, the AC to blow the nacho cheese <laughs> <clears throat> You know, obviously, we, you know, when we do a commentary, we turn the sound down, you know, because there'd be a lot of feedback and shit in the background. So this is my first time watching this uh, film with subtitles on, obviously. And I have to say, it makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> oh, man, you're lucky, because my version doesn't even have subtitles. Anchor Bay couldn't spring for the oh, subtitles. Oh, fucking Anchor Bay. You fucks. Look how bored Supergirl looks now. She's like, that was fun for a couple minutes. But now this is where it gets, okay, well, it was already weird, but yeah. suddenly she is just has a Supergirl costume. Yeah, like, like. Not explained at all. Like in the, you know, in Superman, it was the it was the family, you know, crest and they kind of wrapped it around him as a blanket. But she came in like a white, you know, kind of pajama blouse and right. suddenly she just has a Supergirl outfit. Yeah, I was going to say, because I always thought Superman's, um, you know, suit, you know, suit, costume or whatever was made out of stuff that was in his, you know, bubble with him as a baby, mm-hmm. his escape pod. Yeah, she clearly just, just the fact that she's on Earth makes her transform into Supergirl here. It's ridiculous. And it, again, like all these times where I say that the movie doesn't care, all you need to do is have like one brief moment where they say, oh, she made had the pod make that for her because she knows how her cousin dresses or something right it's not like it was like it would have been tough for them to do it i mean you could have because she literally does have magic clothes like that just change whenever she wants to we'll see it a little bit later like mm-hmm. yeah you could just had done a scene where that white whatever the fuck she was wearing that white tablecloth turned into this you know what i mean yeah 
But I mean, for the fans watching this, like, let's describe that her her big entrance here. She literally went through inner space, somehow was in uh, this lake here, and then she literally just flew up out of the water and then like clumsily landed on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the sequence, though, and this is where we... I mean, we haven't even really mentioned her yet, but okay, so this is the film debut of Helen Slater. This was meant to make her into a big star. Obviously, it didn't quite pan out that way. Mm. But, uh, you know, they chose her over, you know, Brooke Shields, I heard, was, you know, the other finalist. But, I, you know, if as bad as the movie is, Helen Slater makes a great Supergirl. Oh, I And I can't... I mean, look how cute she is, too. Like, if you don't fall in love with her watching this film... I mean, I remember having a huge crush on her as a kid when this movie was... Oh, yeah. I mean, Helen Slater... Oh, saw saw some wires there when she pushed on the rock. But um, I have got to say, when I put this movie in the other night, like, up until the sequence where she became Supergirl, I was like, what is this gobbledygook? Like, I mean, I was just like, like, I don't get it. I don't get where it's going. And then, like, she just comes out. She's Supergirl. She, you know, this is basically her sequence where she's learning to fly, you know, because she, there's a dying cat outside my door. <laughs> you can hear it. Yeah. That's what it is. But uh, he's dying because he's he's not getting his attention. But, um, yeah, like, I was just like, what is this movie? It's just, I don't, I didn't, like, it was so gobbledygook. And then, like, this scene, like, you can't help but just get, you know, I don't know, wrapped up in, the, it's like infectious fun because, like, I mean, we will, we'll try not to be as piggish as me and Corey are when we talk about the hotness of Melissa McCarthy or whatever. Well, I'll, I'll gladly talk about how hot Helen Slater yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, there's no way, listeners, you know, if we have female listeners, I apologize, but there's no way we cannot do this movie and, and constantly comment on the attractiveness of Helen Slater because, I mean, I, I mean, there's lots of good-looking girls in movies now, but I, I still don't think you... You see people who look like this on screen. You know? No, yeah, there's just like, I don't know, like you said, like a real homespun gorgeousness to her. But it also like translates to the performance. Like that moment you just said when she kind of clumsily landed, mm-hmm. one of the first things she does is pick up a rock and crushes it and then kind of blows it away as dust. Yeah. And you can see she's so amazed by it and just like she kind of giggles and has this, you know, captivated look on her face. And she really brings a cool, like, innocence to this part that works for the character a lot. Yeah, like, and that's the thing. It, it's, you know, I mean, I hate to be whatever about it, but. You kind of have to, if you're going to be Supergirl, just like if you're going to be Superman, you know, it, it has to be an actor or actress that's really attractive in the role to make the, you know, character, uh, you know, appeal to a wide audience. And, like, I got to say, like, it's not just that she was, like, you know, a pretty girl, a model or whatever that they threw in the suit, like a cosplay type deal. Like, she, like, it, it really is a combination of her looks, her performance, and just her... Like I like her innocence and her you know na- naivete here just like it 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 really works. Mm-hmm. And she made I mean she holds her own against you know Faye Dunaway and Peter O'Toole and this is her first movie you know. Oh exa- exactly I mean not only does she hold her own but she just she, you know she has great chemistry with these veteran you know top notch actors. Yeah, it's kind of too bad that I mean you can see why this movie didn't go on to sequels, but. If she had been given a shot at this character in a better movie, I feel like this could have turned into a franchise and made her a star. Exactly. The, just there was, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, let, I read a lot about the production of this movie, but I didn't really find anything that really explained. I mean, they clearly spent a lot of money. There was a lot of big sets, but I, di- I didn't really read anything other than maybe they thought they were making it for kids. Like why? Like this movie seems story wise and everything seems very rushed. What you say? Oh yeah. I mean, it's really throwing good. 
So now we're now we're getting. Well, back. The, the pacing is certainly not rushed. Up there. <laughs> no, no, no. So, oh my gosh, I could not, I could not even fathom watching that director's cut. We're gonna get to a point where I mean, later on, I'm gonna talk about like when the actual plot is kicking in, and we got a while till we get to that. Yeah. This is this this is a, a meandering film, man. I'll tell you. Like I like like and another thing too is I mean we'll get to it, but the the fi- the fin- action finale. It's not like this movie slowly builds and builds, and there's a big finale. It slowly builds and builds, and then the finale's over before you know even though it began, yeah. really. I like to imagine that this abandoned amusement park that Faye Dunaway lives in is just above the uh, the lair of the Sawyers in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. You know, if there's the way, you know, some of these uh, genius, uh, you know, internet film editors can make a super cut out of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that would actually be a great combination. Supergirl intercut <laughs> with the Sawyers and... TCM2. Now, not, again, not to be crass, but what are we supposed to make of the relationship of Faye Dunaway and the woman who lives with her? Yeah, it's very strange because, like, it's in terms of a, a sidekick or, a, you know, a helper or whatever, like, it doesn't really come off like that. Like, I don't know. And they don't really come they really off just They really just seem like roommates, you know? Yeah. But it's like, how do you find a roommate to share a abandoned haunted house <laughs> in a deserted theme park? I have to say, like, these scenes, and, like, I saw a lot of people, or not really even people, but just articles and things are written about this movie, bitching about the special effects. I have to say, other than, like, some of the weird, like, um, postures and, you know, body poses she has when she's flying and some of the angles, like, I really like these rear projection uh, flying. I do, too. There's, like, an old school feeling to it that I still enjoy. And I have to say, in a lot of ways, too, it, it looks more real to me than uh, kind of the way they do it now. You know what I mean? Well, because you have the actor there. It's like you know, there's yeah. no CGI of the actor. It's a full performance from them. Yeah, and, like, there's a few just very tiny, tiny quick shots where you can tell it's like a doll and strings. But for the most part, like, you know, it's not like now where, um, you know, there's a literally a CGI stunt of, but it's an actor, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the shot. Okay, we have to comment on this big time. This was, was like, I was like, okay, this is clearly in the 80s. And this is a theme that shockingly, even, the, you know, I never intended it to, is coming up a lot on this podcast, Trev. And that's the subject of rape in mainstream films. <laughs> attempted rape, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah. Like, by the way, like, okay, first of all, let's talk about who one of the attempted rapists is. Oh, yeah, we, we got to talk about <laughs> So, for, for people not listening, you know, a lot of times I don't do scene by scene, but this, we have to do some play by play. This is basically the first time she's landed in the city, and this is basically her first contact with human beings. And who mm-hmm. pulls up in this fucking, you know, uh, you know, big rig here? Matt Frewer, aka Max Hedrum, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then uh, some guy who reminds you of like the third rate Randy Quaid. But the first <laughs> thing they do, they pull up, they see this girl in a super, you know, what they probably think is a Superman costume. And they neatly go to okay, like you know, let, let's start raping her. And I say this is this is indecent. Like the the Randy Quaid looking fuck is like looking up, literally lifting her 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 cape and her skirt up, and he's smoking a cigarette. Keep in mind this is a children's film. I know that's the crazy part about this. And there's even like there's some dialogue here that you could just look at as cheesy dialogue, but it's actually really kind of dark. And so when she says, "Why are you doing this?" and Heffer right. says, "Like it's just the way we are." It's exactly. like, whoa! What kind of bizarre commentary is that for a kids' movie? It's it, it like seriously, it, it is so menacing. This scene, 
And by the way, j- just as a footnote, I want to because because you, you kind of go like, well, that's what, holy I, shit! Did JJ JJ Abrams direct this part? Look at those lens flares! Oh, there's so many lens flares. But I just want to make a note to listeners that Matt Frewer, the attempted rapist, is wearing an A and W root beer shirt. Yeah, do you think A and W is excited about that product placement? Yeah, because later on there's a clear shot of an A and W uh, root beer like vending machine. So they clearly paid to have this like. <laughs> What producer says, okay, we got money from the root beer people. Let's have a rapist wear a fucking... And by the way, the, the other rapist is wearing an STP shirt. There's a, a prominent shot of STP gas station later. So both of the... By the way, listeners, both of these rapists are corporately sponsored to be in this movie. <laughs> they just said the moment where... So the one rapist pulled a knife on her and she used her heat vision to heat it up. And they even animated like little like heat waves coming off of the knife. Mm-hmm. Oof, that was bad. She kicked the guy and he flew back at, like, so slow. I know. Like, at least when she threw Matt Frewer, there was, seemed like a little more force on it. Yeah. Now they're, like, now they're using the attempted rapist as, like, comedy beats. Uh, yeah, yeah. And now they're like, geez, that rape didn't go well. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, that's another thing you would never see in a movie aimed at youngsters or just not rated R uh, because of, you know current ratings rules and stuff there's a lot of people just casually smoking in this film i mean just such a different time you know here we have what i can only assume is going to turn into some weird orgy with all these yeah magic people at faye dunaway's haunted house now this is a scene that i read was cut either down or completely cut out of the theatrical cut and i i can understand why this is just who cares yeah and like i understand the director was french which i don't really get that either but, um, do you, I mean, do you think it was, you know, because when you watch European films, even to this day, they, they do have their own pace, their own whatever. But, I mean, do you think all this, you know, witch coven bullshit here, do you think this, like, was what the director was really going for? Because, I'll be honest with you, there's probably more witch coven bullshit in this movie than there is Kryptonian superpower type shit. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's why this film just seems confused a lot as to what it wants to be. Because it's really just trying to be – it's some kind of bizarre fantasy comedy. And like you just said, the Supergirl elements are very uh, are very slight in this. Yeah. It's like they found the right actress for the part. They found the right you know uh, costume and everything. It looks great. But then they plopped her into a film that the character does not belong in at all. And they gave us a MacGuffin of this Omega Hedron, which – well, I don't know. We'll talk about that more later. Yeah, the Mega Hedron really is uh, Tesseract worthy. I'll say as far as yeah. just being a fucking MacGuffiny MacGuffin MacGuffin stir. Well, it's like even they realized how boring it was, so they kind of instead changed the the main gist of the rivalry between the two of them into something else that I want to talk about later. But yeah. but here we just got this like bizarre. It's like I'm watching like a '70s British comedy with this warlock trying to pick up this ditzy girl at a party and his jealous ex using magic to put a scorpion in her drink i mean what the hell yeah like you can tell they try to ugly this this woman up with these weird lips glasses and stuff but you can tell she's you know clearly out of this guy's league but i guess if you're getting fade done away you can f- pick up young floozies as well by the way the soft focus on fade done away in this film is kind of out of control too it is but she, it makes her look good i'm not gonna lie I don't think Faye Dunaway needs soft focus to look good, though. That's the thing. Well, yeah, especially at this time period, she probably really didn't. By the way, we should talk about who this director is, that because uh, they they tried to get uh, Richard Lester to come back and do this right. one. And he was kind of like, nah, no thanks. I, I've been yeah. there, done that. 
and they've ended up picking uh, Jeanette Zwarzak. I, yeah. Maybe that's how you say it, but uh, yeah, known, I believe you, that is. known mostly for Jaws 2. Right. Um, and then he would go on after this to for also for the Salt Kinds direct the classic Santa Claus the movie with Dudley Moore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of feel like uh, Jaws 2, after seeing his ladder work, Zwarzak's ladder work, I kind of feel like Jaws 2 was probably a movie made in the editing room by the by this executives at Universal. <laughs> Just a small moment like that, Supergirl waking up next to a bunny is are the parts where you're like, oh, this feels like a Supergirl movie. Yeah, if you cut all this witchy bullshit out or trim it way back to where it needs to be, um, which, by the way, I mean, all this witch coming bullshit, I have to say, like, the first time I was watching this movie, like, it really took me a long time to really understand that uh, Faye Dunaway was a witch. I just thought she was, like, some evil, like, female Lex Luthor type that was just... Mm -hmm. You know, stumbled upon this MacGuffin-y power source and was going to exploit it. I thought all her powers and shit were coming from the MacGuffin. I didn't realize it was a combination of her already having, you know, evil powers. Now, this is weird. This is the scene that you mentioned earlier. And I actually want to ask you about this because I don't know if this is like a debate or anything. But you said that the way you take it is she has clothes that, like, magically change. Right. But I kind of take – but her hair changes from blonde to brown. Right. I don't know if what we're seeing is like shape shifting or again, you know, the, the one thing about these, the Salt Kind Superman films is as much as I like the first few, and and I will say, I, I honestly believe the Salt Kinds have a better handle of what the Superman character represents than, say, Michael Bay or not Michael Bay, uh, Zack Snyder does. But that being said, they never qu- quite got the powers right. They give them some like weird made up power in each movie. Yeah. And even in the first Superman film, there is a scene where he jumps out of the window in a suit and the suit just changes into the Superman costume. Yeah. And we kind of just saw that happen here, where she just her not only did her costume, her clothes just change, and a backpack magically appeared, and her hair changed brown so that she could go incognito as a human. Well, I gotta say, I, I don't know if the hair changing color thing is from the comic book or not, but I, I found that just, I mean, especially when you got somebody like Helen Slater, like why do that? And they could have easily have had her. I mean, this is this is at a you know she stumbled onto a you know a girls' prep school. I guess is probably what it is, mm-hmm. like the facts of life or something. And, um, you could have easily had her, like, go into a laundry room and steal some clothes and, you know what that's I mean? What, that's what I mean. It's just, like, you could have easily given an explanation for where she got the Superman costume from, but, I don't know, it's just, like, there's all these things you could easily fix and they were just like, eh, whatever, just move along. Like, she's got, she got superpowers, though, right? Like, she's got powers, she can fly, she can shoot laser beams out, right? She can make some fucking clothes, all right? Just get over it. <laughs> There's okay, so there's this scene here where she's kind of you know introducing herself to the dean, and he's you know she's trying to pose as a new student, and he's clearly you know he's like, well, I've never heard of you, and then he leaves for just a couple seconds, and she goes over to his typewriter super fast, writes a letter of recommendation from Clark Kent. Right. But I mean, she's from Argo City. How would she even know what a typewriter is? How would she know what a letter of recommendation is? You know, it's just like how how, how would she know what our English language is to be able to yeah. you know, compose a letter or whatever. This is some convenient bullshit too. Is the warlock guy just happens to be a teacher at this school? See, this is the this is. I'll be honest, uh, graveyard listeners. I I'm not someone who really gets easily confused at, in films at all. But th- this this film, I was constantly I was like, is this movie just this sloppy and shitty, or did I miss something? Because when the warlock guy showed up, I was like, what the fuck is he doing here now? Because this is just a random girls prep school that she wandered into to you know kind of have 
you know, some cover or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which, which, which this, I'll be honest, like, this story could have easily been constructed in a much tighter way where, like, I think she could have been Supergirl the whole time. Yeah, I was just about to say, I don't even understand the reason why she needs to take cover and mm. pose as human. Because all it is is a distraction to her yeah. from looking for the the tennis ball, you know? Because, like, the way this movie is presented to us, I wouldn't even say it comes across as an origin story where, like, this is the story of how Supergirl came to Earth to start living. Like, I wouldn't understand if it was set up in a way where she had to come live here and needed to establish a cover identity and all that, mm. but... It's kind of like she's just on one single solo adventure, and you know. Well, it's like they, it's the, you can tell the film just wanted to give her a human identity because that's what the Superman movies had, so they want to copy that. Right. But oh, there's the A and W machine. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. Like when I saw that, I was like, "Well, that's weird. A rapist is wearing a root beer T-shirt." But then when I By saw the way, that, I was like, "They paid to have that rapist." <laughs> I love the mail. The male dean just like walks into this women's like dormitory yeah. where they're all half naked. Just he doesn't even care. Look at that, just striding yeah. in. And they're all running out like 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 he's the rapist. You know what I mean? Like they're running out like, oh god, he's gonna see us. And like he clearly, it's, it's not even like he turns away like, okay, girls, get dressed or whatever. He just he marches in here like he does this on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're really going to head to Coincidence City. Uh, can you explain, Trevor, a little bit who Supergirl's roommate is going to be here? <laughs> well, her roommate, in fact, turns out to be Lucy Lane, the mm. younger sister of Lois Lane. Right. Yep, quite the quite the quinky dink. Yeah, which apparently, if you think about the timeline of everything and Margot Kidder and you know her age in the Superman series at this point in time, clearly uh, Lucy Lane uh, was uh, what do you call it? <laughs> was clearly conceived about twenty years after. <laughs> it, it may be 30 years after uh, Lois was. Yeah, this is really weird here. And this is really awkward, too. Um, this this kind of weird, I don't know what you call it, uh, conversation, this banter in between, um, you know, uh, Supergirl's, like, trying to make up her fake name here or trying to get it out or... Miss Lee and Miss Lane and I, do, I was like, why would you make the fake name so similar to Lucy Lane's name? It, it's just it's weird. Or maybe that's the whole reason why they got stuck in the same dorm room. I don't get it. Well, there is like there's a kind of a recurring thing in Superman where all, a lot of the female characters have double L's. So I mean, there's Lois Lane, Lana Lang, that's Lucy true. Lane, Linda Lee here. Was Lana, was Lana supposed to ever be, like, the cousin or something to Lois Lane? No, Lana Lang was always his Smallville girlfriend. That's what I thought, but somehow I thought they connected those up, too. I guess I'm just confused. Why does she have a... Where, the, where is this movie supposed to be taking place? Because she has a Tennessee pennant hanging. I was going to ask you, because there's some shit where somebody looks at, um... Excuse me. So somebody looks at, like, a map, and you see, like, Chicago. Like, you see all real cities... I was going to ask you if you knew about this. Like, I thought DC Comics had all fake cities like Metropolis and Gotham and shit. Like, DC is weird because DC has all the fake cities, but the real cities also exist. Okay, that's because there was definitely there was a there was a period in the eighties uh, where the Justice League were actually located in Detroit. Wow. So they do have they will reference Chicago and New York, but they also have Metropolis and Gotham and Star City. Hey, here we have Christopher Reeve's big cameo, uh, a poster. Yeah, and I got to say, like. You can say what you want about the movies, and I don't know how modern artists feel about it, but holy shit, man. And maybe it's just the age I am at, but, like, 
He was just the he was Superman to me. He still oh he's is. yeah he's still Superman to me too. Yeah, it's really like a shame. I know uh, they asked him to be in this film just to do a small cameo, and he really was kind of done with it at this point. And it really is too bad. I mean, Goat, I, I guess I'd ask you, how much more do you think this film would be legitimized if he had made some kind of appearance in this? Do you think that alone would have made this like? I mean, I don't think it would have been a much bigger hit. But do you think it'd be a little bit more regarded as part of the series today if he was in it at least? I think so because, you know, like we said, like the distribution path of this is like really weird because Warner Brothers didn't even put it out. Now Warner Brothers, um, like the DVD I have, Warner Brothers did finally put out a DVD, but it was only like around the time that they did like a Superman box set and they kind of... Yeah, they wouldn't put it in there. Yeah, they just wanted to have it around at the same time. But um, I think also they did want to acknowledge how terrible it was which by the way i'm not saying it's terrible i mean i think this movie has a lot of warts has a lot of flaws but like i mean you can't watch this movie with all its damn problems you can't watch this movie and still not want a supergirl 2 with helen slater i mean right and you also you can't act like this is say like worse than superman 4 you know this is the most embarrassing the series got and you know like it's kind of funny that you know, it, and by the way, like, I really like uh, Brandon Routh. I really like uh, uh, Henry, what's his name? Cavill? Cavill? Cav- Cavill. Yeah. Henry Cavill. I really like those guys, and I even, just as actors, and I really like him as Superman. But there was something about Christopher Reeve and then Helen Slater where, like, these movies, well, I think the first Superman was pretty good, and the second one was, you know, had its moments too. But, like, these movies, honestly, they weren't. They weren't very good movies, but you, you as a, a viewer, you were held by Superman and Supergirl, how good they were. Mm-hmm. Now we really got to talk. He was in the background on one scene. Now we got to talk about, there is a five-minute damn scene in this movie where uh, Brenda Vaccaro and Faye Dunaway just drool and drool and literally almost finger-bang themselves while watching a shirtless <laughs> Hart Bachner uh, paint a tree or saw a tree, whatever the hell he was doing People don't know Hart Bachner. Uh, I know him from the um, pseudo sequel to uh, Fast Times, uh, uh, the the Wildlife with uh, Chris Penn and Eric Stoltz, where he plays a cop who's banging the high school or the Emma's high school, Leah Thompson. But the rest of the world will know Hart Bachner as who, Trevor? They will know him as Ellis from Die Hard. Hans, baby, let's do some coke. Shoot me in the head. Here we have. So here we have. Uh, those of you who only know Ellis, just think. Imagine Ellis as a romantic lead in a film, and that's what we have here. Ellis as a romantic lead in a film. He doesn't quite have the cokehead beard, but he does have a really thick stubble. And people go, "Well, you know, he was young." He was, keep in mind this is only four years before Die Hard, so it's yeah. pretty much the same guy being the love interest. A and sh- as you said, like, every woman who sees him is oh, just like, god. oh my god. Yeah. Which, which, I mean, by the way, the guy was an actor. He had a good little run in the 80s. He wasn't a bad-looking guy. But, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's, for the way that they, this film is literally written just to be like, you know, oh man, like, oh, every woman wants him. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. They actually says shit in this movie here. Lucy Lane said, oh, shit, when the, the teacher called them after. That's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Interest, another interesting fact about Hart Bachner. Did you know that he directed PCU and High School High? That You know what? I Actually, I, actually, I didn't know about uh, High School High. But I, I, now that you said that, I did know about PCU. 
I really like the guy. I don't I don't know what the fuck happened to him, why his acting career wasn't better, why his directing career wasn't better. The guy was telling it's just in this movie he's just woefully miscast. I mean if Helen Slater doesn't have a shot of becoming a star after this, I guess Hart Bachner's not gonna fare much better. No he isn't. I gotta look up Hart Bachner because I don't wanna speak out of school here, but I wanna say the man's deceased now. Is he? Uh let me let me hit the IMDB. No, not according to Wikipedia. Okay, I am wrong. I'm thinking of somebody he's, else. He's, looks like he's still working. Yeah, he's 59 years old. And just to give you an update of how he aged, his most recent picture on uh, IMDb, I'm going to say almost, you know, modern day, almost a dead ringer for Michael Bay. <laughs> yeah, he's got an untitled Warren Beatty project. Uh, well, it's completed, but it'll be coming out in 2016. I like how on Wikipedia it says they had, he had a cameo in the 2013 Carrie remake. But then it says uncredited. Like that, yeah. Usually uncredited is like when you get a big star. Do they think people are watching Carrie and be like, oh my god, they got Hart Bachner for this. Yeah, like I'm, I'm looking at his filmography and like, like that uncredited role, like you said. I would say that, um, I would say, well, he, he, he's uncredited in a bunch of Warren Beatty shit. And uncredited, mm-hmm. so I think he's just kind of, you know, I don't know what his like quote unquote day job is or if he even needs a day job, but um, I, I'm going to say that uh, he's probably just working now when he gets a call from his friends who are like, oh, we're doing this yeah. thing. Heart, why don't you come down here? That kind of seems like where he's at. But if you watch Supergirl, holy shit, you thought this guy was <laughs> poised, poised for start. I mean, I want to say a good analogy is they treat him like the way. In this movie, they treat him like the way Kevin Costner was treated in movies at the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're getting into some, like Porky's bullshit going on in screen here. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you called that out because this is a you know this is a clean film. I, I believe the ratings PG. There's like a lot of shower room shit and hijinks here, and Supergirl shooting beams through the walls and all this bullshit and shower scenes, and of course no nudity. So I gotta nope. beg. Why are we adding to this torturously long running time with very clean, nudity-free bullshit scenes like this? I mean, at this point, we are 42 minutes into this film, and we still, like, the the main character has not met the villain. There's really no conflict between the two of them yet at this point. Uh, the, The villain hasn't even really figured out what the Omega Hedron can do or what it is. It's This movie is just kind of, like, bullshitting at this point. Like, like... I would say, and granted, you know, we don't have access to the shorter American cut or American theatrical cut, but, um, this, you know, even the shit with Supergirl, you know, trying to fit in at a, you know, American Earth uh, prep school, that's okay, but when it comes to the long orgy scenes, <laughs> they done away, <laughs> that's the shit that should have gone, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Lucy says she's got a guy coming up from Metropolis, and he knows your cousin Clark. So, like, kind of with what you're saying, with they should have got Christopher Reeve to like come and do a, um, mm-hmm. you know, a cameo. Well, they couldn't get him, but they got the next best thing, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy Olsen himself. That's right. And Jimmy Mark- Olsen in these movies, he's played by a nerd. Yeah, Mark McClure is the only Superman actor who appears in this film as well. So he's the he's the tie to the continuity. Yeah. Now, go to. I want to ask you this point because part of the reason we chose to do this film is because 
right now there's a Supergirl TV show that's just started yeah. doing quite well. Have you had a chance to see it yet? Or I have not, and I I get a full disclosure. I have tapped out on TV, not because anything's bad, but just because in the modern Hulu, whatever, like, like I, I can't keep up with weekly shows. I pretty much have to, at this point, wait for him to get on Netflix. I, I, okay. I, I, you know, I've gave up. I saw, like, the first two episodes of Gotham this season, and then the third one I missed because Hulu deleted it or whatever. So mm-hmm. I've currently got no, other than Walking Dead, I should say, other than that, um, I've got no TV shows going on right now. Okay. Because you know, I, I'm sure you've heard a little bit about. Uh, first of all, the show is really good. It's Sounds obviously a much, good. it's a much better version of Supergirl than this movie. Obviously, yeah. you know, uh, Melissa Benoist who plays Supergirl is great. I thought it was actually really cool as they have uh, Helen Slater as her adoptive mother on Earth, and oh. Dean Cain as her adoptive father. I thought that oh, was a nice, nice. little nod. Yeah, nice. Yeah, but no, uh, I, I, I just saw a still of Helen Slater doing her cameo or whatever. I didn't know yeah. it was like a real character. Yeah, and it's uh, but I you know they they're never going to have Superman on the show. You know they've been pretty open about that. But the way around it is they she does talk about him a lot. You know she's like yeah. you, you they have a relationship. He's texted her. You've seen them have text conversations. You've seen him in silhouette at times. He did save her in one, in one episode, but she was kind of passing out, so she saw like a hazy image of him. Right. And you know I'm sure it's going to get annoying after a couple of seasons, but at least they're acknowledging him. And in this we have her in this film. She just kind of shows up and tells people. Oh, I'm Clark Kent's cousin, but there's no indication ever given that he even knows she's on Earth. So, I mean, yeah, like the not being able to get Christopher Reeve to agree to it, I think, did kind of put a damper on on what the film could have had with for for that opportunity. I, I, yeah, I think one publicity shot released at the time, like a lobby card or something of him and her standing together in the in the suits. I, th- I think probably like would have really helped sell this film big time. Yeah. No, no, let me ask you something, because Christopher Reeve, I mean, like, the suits that they wear, it's not like, it, let's be honest, it's not like the shit, like, you know, Chris Hemsworth gets to wear now, not that he's not in great shape or whatever, but, like, Christopher, he, he had to be in top, top, top amazing shape back then. Do you think he just didn't want to get into that type of shape for, like, a five-minute cameo for this film? Maybe that's what it was? I really just think he, I, he if you kind of go back and read about Christopher Reeve. He kind of had a love-hate relationship with that character. I think right away he felt kind of trapped by it and stereotyped and or stereotyped, uh, you know, uh, what sort of typecast. Type that's cast, what yeah. yeah. And then, uh, you know, Superman 3 didn't turn out the way anyone wanted it to, I think. Yeah. And so I just think, I'm sure he felt like there was no point to come back just for a little cameo. They would have had to throw a lot of money at him, I bet. And this is obviously not an expensive film. So yeah. you need that money to pay Hart Bachner, you know. That was it. I have to say, I think uh, I think they they dumped a lot of money into this movie, uh, into the sets, and that was about it. Because mm-hmm. because I mean, and I have to say, I never really trust um, like modern day Wikipedia budget numbers for old ass movies. But I think this is listed as having a pretty damn good budget. Uh, Thirty five million. I guess that's yeah. not bad. That's actually awesome for that. I, I clearly think that's uh, that's inflated. I would say this probably half half that, but still. It's, well, you know, well let's good. hope so because it only made fourteen point three million. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Hart Wagner gets called over to do some, which I, I thought he was a gardener, but he's getting called over to do some handiwork inside the uh, yeah. Well, by the way, though, he's walking around this haunted house. He's got the toothpick in his mouth. He's really kind of channeling Ellis here, though. Yeah, he really is. He's laying down the foundation, which, by the way, that movie I was talking about, he was in, uh, which actually would have been, like, right before this, The Wildlife, or maybe it would have been right after, it would have been, like, really close to this, 
he plays a like a, a police officer who just kind of goes around and bangs like girls who work in donut shops and shit. He's really channeling Ellis in it in that too. <laughs> oh, we have to point this out big time. A Schlitz malt liquor. Yeah, all the smoking, all the you know unpolitically well, I guess political correctness didn't even exist back then. But yeah, she offers him a cold drink. You think oh it's gonna be some iced tea? It's fucking Schlitz malt liquor. <laughs> And she acts like she's going to drink it too. Faye Dunaway going to drink Schlitz malt liquor. Now Schlitz malt <laughs> liquor had to pay for this, right? Oh, I would imagine. It, it, okay, now 1983, 1984, whatever product placement. A and W had enough money to get a rapist to wear a shirt that had their logo. A and W had the money <laughs> to get a vending machine in the background at the girls' school. But apparently, A and W didn't have enough money to get uh, Hart Bachner and Faye Dunaway to drink. And look at this. She's holding it so you can see the logo. Oh, so yeah, there, yeah. Like, yeah. This isn't... And not only that, but that hero shot of when she put her poison spell shit into it. I mean, that was like... I mean, imagine watching this movie back in the day, you know, before they had Cracker Jack movie, you know, shopping mall movie theaters. People were probably watching this damn thing on 50-foot high screens, drive-in screens. I mean, that, that mall liquor was huge on the screen. <laughs> Okay, I I want to talk now here about the other central plot of this film because it's kicking in here. Yeah. Now, in a day and age where you know Goat, and we've seen it play out a lot in the last couple of years, a lot of controversy about, you know, not enough female superheroes. Mm. And when they feel, you know, finally do get made, there's a big push to let's make sure we have a female director. Let's right. make sure these are strong characters. Now, besides the Omega Hedron plot, what this movie is really about at the end of the day is two women fighting over a guy. Yeah, it, it, it's very sexist. Very. It's very sexist. And I mean, so what we see here is Faye Dunaway has become obsessed with this handyman character played by Hart Bachner. Yeah. And she decides to cast kind of a love spell on him where she put this stuff into his schlitz. Molly. And now he's, he's passed out. When he wakes up, the first woman he sees he's going to be hopelessly in love with. And she plans for it to be her. Right. But things go awry and he ends up waking up and seeing Supergirl first. And first of all, uh, is it me, or couldn't you just make it where he sees Supergirl and falls in love with her? Why do you need to bring the love potion thing in? Yeah, but I mean, wouldn't any yeah. wouldn't any guy see Supergirl and and fall for her? Like, I don't understand why we need to, this idea that he's only in love with her because he's been you know tricked into it. Yeah, I mean, we're sitting here thirty years later, and we and we're in love with Supergirl. Why can't he be? You know? Yeah. But then, but yeah, so then the movie really becomes, I mean, the Omega Hedron kind of becomes secondary to the idea that Faye Dunaway is mad at Supergirl because she took her man away. Yeah. And holy shit, that's not the kind of story you would allow to no, be no. the Supergirl movie nowadays. Like I said, this is a very different time. Um, a lot of cocaine being done in the film industry back then. A lot of uh, sexism being, you know, practiced, I would say. I mean, just, just just the concept that Supergirl would get nearly raped in a film, I mean, that's just, that's batshit crazy. Yeah, this is a night, I, I, I'll be honest, I wouldn't mind living in this haunted house, because it, like, it has, like, the tracks and shit everywhere, like, where the little car... Yeah, you can, you can ride... Yeah, you can ride the little train around. There was just a great moment earlier where Faye Dunaway was kind of making a spell, and Brenda Vaccaro rode a little choo-choo train by. Yeah. Cause, but the thing is, it's also, like, a legit house or apartment, too, because there was, like, a full, true kitchen in there. Mm-hmm, and there's a bedroom. And... Yeah, I mean, just, it's so bizarre. I do enjoy it. You know what? I, I'm a sucker for a haunted house in a movie. I am, too. And I gotta say, just the campiness of having a witch villain live in a haunted house, you probably would never see that in a movie today, especially in a, you know, big-budget superhero movie. 
But, like, I kind of think that kind of weirdness and goofiness is kind of what we're missing in some of these, like, self-important comic book films now. Now, I want to ask you, I I was reading some trivia about this, as I'm sure you were over the last couple days, and it did say that, you know, the the critical reception of this was super negative. And I, you know, I somewhat get it, but it talked about how both Peter O'Toole and Faye Dunaway were nominated for Razzies for Worst Actor and Worst Actress. But, I mean... I don't. Faye, I, Dun- yeah. what, Faye Dunaway is just having a blast in this movie. Like this is what I. This is like. Um, it reminds me of people who say Uma Thurman is bad in Batman and Robin. Oh. But there's a there's a difference between being bad and just embracing camp. And, and I mean, sometimes the best actors are the ones who understand like camp works in a film like this. And, and, and Faye, Faye Dunaway is going very over the top, very big, but she's yeah. awesome. And like the thing, but the thing about it is too is like. I have seen, like, shitty movies, like, lower-budgeted movies, like, especially, like, in the wake, I would say, in the late 80s of, like, you know, uh, where what they call scenery chewing became really popular, especially for villains and action movies and stuff. There is a shitty way to overact and chew scenery, and, like, Faye Dunaway is doing it actually pretty damn good in this movie. Well, Faye Dunaway, I mean, you've seen Mommy Dearest, I'm sure. Faye oh, Dunaway yeah. knows knows how to overact. You know, she's yeah. she's she's a, a pro at it. If Ma- you want to talk about bad acting, look at Hart Bachner try to stagger <laughs> around and act like he's <laughs> blinded or drunk or whatever. Oh, yeah. he It's it's so fucked up, the way he acts in this scene. But, yeah, like, uh, talking about Mommy Dearest, like, that movie was on cable all the time when I was a kid. I would see bits and pieces of it, saw it all the way through a couple times. And I had I had no idea who the movie was about, and like mm. like it, it just fucked with me so much. Like it didn't really scare me, but I was just like like that was like you know how like people like look at like a gory ass movie like Hostel, and they think Eli Roth is like a a real life murderer, crazy person, like whatever. Like I just I was like you know as a kid I was like why would somebody make a movie about this? It's just about some lady who beats her daughter. Like who like who gets off on it? And you know I didn't realize it was fascinating to people because of who who the movie was based on and all that. I just thought yeah. like like literally to me, Mommy Durst was my first like venture into the to- torture porn horror genre. <laughs> Do you have Mommy Dearest on DVD? No, I don't. But I would be happy, happy to track down a copy or do something. Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something about that DVD. It'll make you want to get it even more because I don't have it. But I, I flirted with getting it so many times. It has audio commentary by John Waters. Holy shit! Really? Yeah, because it's like his favorite film. So I, wow. like, I've, I've come close to buying it on numerous occasions just because I really want to listen to that commentary. At the very least, yeah, I'd be willing to give it a rental and do a commentary for it. This scene goes on for so long. This Hart Buckner wandering around and. Well, not only that, but, um, by the way, that was a great little effect where you had a stunt person with their head down flying a Supergirl, and then Helen Slater pops out as a schoolgirl on the other end of the, you know. Oh, yeah, like metal tubing or whatever, yeah. yeah. All right, now, we, <laughs> we have to talk about the scene here, which I, I, like, I'm not even bullshit, I'm not doing a shtick here, Trevor. I think this scene, he saw it as a kid, this is what inspired Zack Snyder to get involved in the Superman franchise. Because what was the number one you know, bitch and whatever about Man of Steel. It was that Sears, it was that Waffle House. Well, this movie takes a Popeye's chicken (laughs) sponsorship to a whole new level, wouldn't you say? Oh, my God. These people love Popeye's chicken. We get numerous shots of the Popeye's chicken signage. Uh, This whole scene's playing out in a Popeye's chicken. By the way, there's a guy in Popeye's chicken right now just with his shirt open, (laughs) like bare torso. 
But yeah, we're seeing the chicken and biscuits sign in the back. And now, and you've seen, I know you've seen it because you posted too, and I've posted on my Instagram before. Some of the promotional images for this film were Supergirl standing in front of a Popeye's chicken exactly. sign. Yeah. So it, they clearly they paid the most. And even the like the little sign on the Popeye's chicken sign, where, like where you could take the plastic letters and spell shit out. It says "Love that chicken" <laughs> in those shots. I'm surprised I haven't found a photo yet with Supergirl holding like a drumstick. Well, exactly. And the thing the thing is, it's crazy is um, when Jimmy Olsen was like bringing the tray of shit to the kids at the table. He he was like, who's got the onion rings? Who's got the fries? Who got the chicken strip? He's like, they were literally like working in a way to name off all the <laughs> shit that you could order at Popeye's Chicken back then. That's why I wonder if when this movie came out, like when you went to Popeye's Chicken, if they had like the little clingy posters like on the windows and shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Imagine what if you had like a good pristine one of those, how much that shit would be worth. Maybe you've got a Popeye's chicken and like Happy Meal with A and W. You got a little toy of Matt Frewer, the rapist. Yeah, and oh, Joel, shit! <laughs> Could you imagine that? Uh, also, too, I want to point out that small town that they're in, Midville, Illinois. Like, clearly, this is kind of like a fake street because they bash into like a lot of these buildings here. But did you notice how, like, during those shots, Justin Trev, like, there were so many like actual billboards for shit in the background, and I've never seen a small town be so filled with billboards. No, and it was here like the tampons an... and shit too. Here we have another crossover expanded universe. We get Supergirl versus Killdozer. Yeah, maximum overdrive a little bit. So Faye Dunaway has brought a, uh, you know, like a bulldozer to life. Yeah, with magic. Mm-hmm. And it's driving around chomping its uh, claw, <laughs> trying to get Hart Bachner. Which, like, was she, I mean, she's going to scoop him up here in a second. But, like, was, like, was she trying to just, like, cut him in half? Or yeah, but how, by the way, how has he not seen a girl yet at this point? I mean, there's, there, there's, there's like, there's 30 certainly... women on the street. yeah. I, I think they just got around it because all the people were on the sidewalk, so they hit him and just walked down the middle of the street like a dummy. By the way, did you notice, Trev, like, obviously this is, like, a bit of, you know, production, budget, whatever, like, when the killdozer kills his car right here. Did you notice how flat as fuck the tires were, like, when it was rolling up uh, the, the parked car? The tires were so flat. That was obviously a shitty junk car that they got to do that with. <laughs> This fucking, this street, man, it's so busy with commerce. Now, did you see that? Was Okay, when, when that car that swerved to get out of the way, the killdozer swerved into, like, a women's dress shop, I couldn't tell when I watched this the other night. Was that a fucking person that got plowed over, or was that, like, just, like, a, a window store mannequin? Yeah, I don't know. I wondered that, too, because I wasn't sure if, I mean, I'm sure it was a mannequin, but I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be a person. Because it looked like the arms, like, flailed up when it flew in there, and I couldn't tell, well, maybe that was just, like, the mannequin flying back, or it was, like, a person being like, oh, no, shit, oh. Like, but it, it looks really bad. Like, it looks like a, you know, a killer stunt gone wrong. <laughs> God, Hart Bachner is just... I was crawling like a baby down the street as the bulldozer finally scoops him up. This is just so, like, it's so long. It's, I mean, and this is, like, the big, this is Supergirl's introduction to, like, humans, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. her first kind of big moment of heroism, and it's just her kind of taking on a runaway bulldozer. Well, not only, not only not, that, but, Not like, quite as exciting as the plane, or, I mean, the helicopter in Superman, or, you know, yeah. the plane in Superman Returns. Again, again with the product placement, there's a kid with an STP shirt. Like he's the, probably the son of that one guy of the rapist. Yeah, and then there's an STP uh, gas station that gets taken out here in a minute. But it was kind of like 
I don't know, it was really quick, but did you see that, like, all the kids in the Popeyes were marveling over that one grease ball's, like, tiny little tattoos on his arm? <laughs> and, like, Supergirl's like, wow, and, and Lucy was like, what's the matter, haven't you ever seen a tattoo before? Like, what a weird thing to put in. Even a wedding is going to get destroyed by this, this witch-powered bulldozer here. There's a lot going on in this small town on this day. Hail, hail bays flying everywhere. Fucking taxi cabs with ads on top of them. There's, I'm not kidding. I don't think there's like one square inch of this fucking podunk town that's not filled with a billboard. I mean, maybe the budget was $35 million for this movie and they just got like extra money to snort up their nose from all these fucking sponsorships. What exactly just knocked Lucy Lane out? Like, just some kind of... I don't know. That was bizarre. Yeah, it was It was like the bulldozer took a tight turn, and she, I guess she just, like, from getting rattled around... <laughs> How tight bulldozer. of a turn can this thing take? <laughs> it's almost like a Benny Hill skit at this point. Like, a big rubber tire rolling around loose and all this shit. By the way, I, you know, I'm guessing it's some type of rotoscoping... Matt, whatever, but I like the, I mean, it's only used a few times, but I like the uh, visual effect of when Supergirl goes into super speed mode. Yeah, it's fun looking. When she runs. Now we have a burning pile of tires, <laughs> and the Supergirl's going to fly up after going into the women's restroom and change. She's going to fly up, she's going to stand on top of the Popeyes, and there's going to be a, sh- a literally a shot from behind her looking through her legs, and down the street you can see a stay-free maxi pad. Uh, billboard in the background that was strange we're gonna i need to uh we'll have to screen grab the moment where she flies up and there's like three popeye signs yeah we'll have to, we'll have to throw that on the uh the movie <laughs> graveyard page we, we, we will yeah and the, that was the one shot where you could tell it was a dummy that kind of like flew through the model of the water tower mm-hmm. but it still was a cool thing that just supergirl could just fly through a water tower like that Oh, thank God those rubber tires got burned out. I, I was afraid they were going to completely go up. And then they wouldn't be able to sell the rubber tire. Now, because she's flying around through the hay bales that I mentioned earlier, they flew in the street. And now everybody's blinded by the, the, the loose hay flying around. They don't even know what they're seeing, right? I'm sure the thinking was, like, let's have this film play out in a small town because the Superman films are Metropolis and that'll right. kind of, you know, kind of make it different. But I don't know. It, it's kind of the same complaint people had about the, the first Thor film mm-hmm. where you put it in, like, a small town like that and it just makes the stakes seem so small right. to a certain degree. It's not, I don't know, it just doesn't, like you just said earlier, where it, this doesn't really feel like any kind of exciting Supergirl origin story because... Uh-huh. It's not like she does a lot of... There's, she doesn't interact with people a lot. No, there, there's um, not a lot. I mean, her character does, I guess you could argue, has an arc, kind of, just because she's interacting mm-hmm. with the humans for the first time, but it don't really go we don't, anywhere. We don't, and we don't get to see like humanity or the world react to her. You know, right. and be like, oh my god, there's a female Superman around. We don't really get that. And you said, I guess... It, it's it, there's an interesting idea that they don't play with a lot, and you mentioned earlier, but it's it's even kind of glossed over that when the rapists see her, mm-hmm. at this point, if you if you saw Supergirl, you probably would just think like, well, Superman's been around for a few years. Yeah, there yeah. probably are people who just wear Superman costumes. You know, you'd think it's like yeah, cosplay respect yeah, then. Yeah. costume. But nobody even ever says anything like that to her, which I think they could have done for at least comedy bits or something. Yeah. Hart Wagner's really got his Ellis seven o'clock shadow going on here. Oh, that's right. I forgot that he fall. He actually falls in love with uh, Linda Lee, the human. That, that's right. Yeah, the the human identity of Supergirl. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck actually about Supergirl because she 
her magic clothes and her magic hair changed back real quick. Mm-hmm. Old Faye's got some dramatic lighting on her face there, don't she? Oh, yeah. Jeanette Zwarzak knows what he's doing. Yeah. Oh, Hart almost uh, hit his head on the fork. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the, uh, for people not playing along, Supergirl saved uh, Hart Wagner by ripping off the claw thing of the Killdozer and uh, then flying. And there were some good wires uh, being shown. Yes, yeah, so they're display. like they're gelling up the lens as if it's like a flashback there for yeah, some reason. It's weird. Lucy finally woke up in the Killdozer and sees a. Uh, you know, her friend making out with Hart Bachner. Which, by the way, this has got to be like a statutory rape type situation right here, right? I mean, he's like the gardener of the school. Clearly got a 28-year-old man's 7 o'clock shadow beard going on. And he's kissing a 15-year-old girl. Also, that's just, that's also, how Hart Bachner rolls, man. Well, also, isn't Jimmy Olsen doing some statutory raping right here, too? Well, but isn't it like Lucy has a crush on him? I'm not sure he okay. cares that much. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Although, interestingly enough, Jimmy Olsen and Lucy Lane are a couple in the Supergirl TV show. Although, yeah. there we have like a sexy, you know, buff black Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. And Lucy Lane is played by Channing Tatum's wife. Okay. <laughs> Jenna DeWu and Tatum. Yeah. But to be, okay, to be fair though, Jimmy Olsen, they said earlier. He drove down or drove up, I don't know what direction. He drove all the way to that podunk town from Metropolis just to hang out with Lucy Lane. So, that, I mean, that does sound like some Chris Hansen type shit right there. Yeah, that's true. You got me there. Although, maybe it's the thing where he's like, yeah, Lucy, I'll totally come visit you. Where do you live again? Oh, a school full of women? Like, yeah. You know, Jimmy knows what he's doing. A school of women that I could all go to jail for having a relationship <laughs> with. I'm sure they'll be impressed by my bow tie and giant camera. Yeah. And I gotta say, too, you're gonna have to help me out a little bit more here, being more familiar with this film. Like, I started really getting uh, lost with the witch hooey that's going on here. <laughs> like, this uh, this statue that keeps growing, and uh, the incantations, the 20 minute scenes of inc- witch incantations. I was gonna say, what, I mean, you, you, how do you, what kind of help do you need from me? It's like you, you think I understand what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. It's like a little statue. Or, I don't know, I don't know what it is, like a seashell or something. She keeps the magic ball in. And, and I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, obviously she's doing some witchcraft, but I'm guessing this magic ball helps her in her witchcraft to open up kind of portals to other worlds and shit and mm-hmm. let creatures through and whatnot. Is this where she's summoning, like, the shadow creature, or is that a little later? I think this is, like, the beginning of it here. Yeah. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, because it's, yeah, just walk through the wall, okay. Yeah. And, like, I was really lost watching this the other night. Like, watching it for a second time, shit's starting to add up a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, we were talking about kind of how dull this movie is and how long it takes to, I wouldn't even say how long it takes to set up. It just, it keeps plotting. This, there was a, and obviously this isn't a kid's film. There's attempted rapes, everybody's smoking cigarettes nonstop, weird orgy-type situations about to break out all the time, statutory rapes. But, like... I kind of, looking back at some of the films from this time period, I mean, obviously you have films like Goonies, Back to the Future, which were just entertaining the hell out of any kid and whatever, but then you kind of do have, you ever see movies like this, Trev, that like, you watch them as an adult, and you're like, okay, this is kind of cool and interesting for me now, but like, who would ever expect a six, seven-year-old kid to sit still in a fucking movie theater for two hours watching such a 
you know, a nothing movie with hardly anything going on, you know? Like Star Wars Episode 1 and 2? Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, okay, there was the house mother of the dorm drinking in the background. More not kid-friendly shit. Oh, this, I like this, though. We got a lot of miniature work going on, which I'm always into. Yeah, it is cool miniature work um, of just... Um, like some, It's like an invisible creature that uh, Faye Dunaway has sent... Yeah. After Supergirl, um, so we basically like a, a giant. It's like a kaiju essentially, but invisible. That's kind of yeah, like. Yeah, I was gonna say I was hoping Bird would join us because I, <laughs> I wanted to get his thought on. Uh, like I was gonna have him actually rape this kaiju since he's a kaiju <laughs> expert, and, and I, I'm curious what he would have come up with because this is a kaiju that you literally cannot see yeah. whatsoever. But we see, like, there's some cool miniature work of it stomping through the countryside. Yeah. Now this is cool to like see again. This is where I do kind of fall in love with Supergirl. You know, she that's her first kiss. She's never experienced a kiss before, and she keeps kind of reliving it. And doesn't You can tell she doesn't even really know what a kiss is, but she just knows she liked it. Yeah. But, I mean, the innocence, again, of Helen Slater here, it works really well. It does. I mean, I mean obviously, you know, it'll probably be another one, you know, probably you and me will do a commentary for down the line. But she would kind of follow this up with the legend of Billie Jean. And it's just like, man, like, so much talent for a young actress and, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I mean, I get you know. I guess she had a better career than ninety nine point nine percent of most actresses who start out or whatever. But yeah, but not as good of one as she should have. Exactly, such a shame. Getting getting back to that episode one and two dig though, Trevor is is uh, Star Wars, and I don't you know, and we even see it now. You know, we're recording this, uh, you know, probably three or four weeks before. Episode 7 comes out, but I think this will post, like, the week of. But, uh, I feel like, and I've, and it's it's true if you look at the Fandango demographic, whatever, pre-sale numbers, apparently Star Wars is mostly consumed right now by men ages, like, 32 to 50 or whatever. And, and like, I don't know, like, I think even, I think even Jar Jar Binks back in the day was probably most looked at... <laughs> <laughs> judged by men in their 30s and 40s like i don't know like I don't, I don't i don't think star wars is really for kids anymore in a weird way like do you well i just think you know kids aren't the ones who are going to be out buying tickets and and mm. generating any kind of talk and hype online i think that's part of it i think you and i see mostly adults talking about it. now I, I work in a bookstore we have star wars toys star wars displays and i'll tell you kids do like star wars like they come in but and and, and i will acknowledge like for uh, for a lot of kids they're younger than like way younger than we are their knowledge of star wars is really based around clone wars and stuff like that you know they're into like the rebels show now yeah but then, but, they, I but i mean it. it's different because like they've they i guess it's somewhat true for you and i because we're about you know we're close in age but Kids even more so have just been born into a world where Star Wars is a thing. You know, it was never like just kind of growing. Everyone just knows Star Wars. So, you know, they're four years old and five years old and they already have Yoda dolls and know about Darth Vader. So, yeah, I think they like it. But I think adults are just the ones who keep the conversation going the most because they're the ones who can't ever let go of their childhood and want to keep talking about it online. Yeah, I mean... Which, I, I'm, which I'm guilty of, you know. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm guilty of it nonstop. <laughs> but, I mean, like, I, I feel like... Um, I feel like, you know, you can say whatever you want about the guy and his creative decisions in recent times, but, you know, the smartest thing George Lucas ever did, and, it, and, it, and I truly believe it, it helped make these new Star Wars movies, was keeping Star Wars alive after the prequels and the reaction the prequels got... He was trying to, like, A, win the fans back with those cartoons like Clone Wars 
and B, he was trying to, you know, keep it alive for the next generation. So it wouldn't just be old farts going on, you know, from that mm. point on. I think, I think, you know, say what you want about his, like I said, his creative decisions, but when you talk about franchise management, George Lucas was a damn genius. Well, that's why, I mean, I, now that we want this episode to just turn into a huge Star Wars discussion, but that's why I was, I was surprised to hear you say before that you really thought Star Wars might just kind of die with Lucas. Mm. I and mean, I just feel like there's no way that even Lucas thought that was the case. I think from the moment he started franchising it, he he turned Star Wars into a beast, and there was no doubt that it was going to live on beyond him and keep growing and growing. And I don't know that anyone really thought that Episode Three was the last Star Wars movie, you know? I did. I did for the longest time, and I thought it was because he had such a death grip on it. Like, I thought he wouldn't... And, like, I could see that he was kind of trying to rehab the image and the the brand name with stuff like Clone Wars. But, uh, I mean, him, him passing it on to Disney, from what I understand, was, like, a really, really hard decision for him to come to. And I think it was, like, letting your baby go, but at the same time realizing, like, you have to because you can't ever do it again. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, despite what he says, I think Lucas, if, if shit would have gone smoother with uh, episode one through three... I think he would eventually got the itch and done another, you know what I mean? Like, maybe because of his age now and his health, he wouldn't have been as hands-on as he was at the prequels, but... I guess, I mean, but yeah, I mean, maybe, but I guess this is where you and I will just always disagree, is that there's a part of me that thinks it's exciting to see it now move on to the people who grew up with it and are fans of it, and now just have one guy do all of it. Like, I I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I, I like... I don't know, there's a... I just recently wanted... I was thinking of writing this, like, essay about this idea that, you know... Characters like Dracula and Frankenstein and the the Wolfman, like they're kind of in public domain, right? So we get multiple iterations of them. But then characters like Freddy, Jason, and Michael Myers, there there's a stranglehold on them from the company right. that owns them, and that means we never they can never be kind of, kind of become the legends that other characters do because you don't get multiple versions of them in different stories. And I think a big thing that makes characters legends and lets mythology grow is the fact they go on past the original creators. You know, Batman didn't stop when Bill Finger and Bob Kane were done. Superman outlived Siegel and Schuster, you know, so Star Wars, I feel like, should outlive Lucas, and other people should get a crack at adding on to that mythology. It's just, it's just with Lucas, um, I don't know, with Lucas, it was so that he had such a stranglehold on it, and it was so, and, like, I understand there was a lot of creatively, there was a lot of stuff from the original trilogy that didn't come from George Lucas, came from his collaborators and whatnot, but, like, I just, you know... I can buy into the fact of Star Wars living on without him, but I just always thought it was going to be like, um, like he would be, he would, he would kind of let it go, but he still would be like the elder shepherd of it. The idea of him just getting cut out of it completely, either by choice or by that's the way the business deal had to go down or just Mm -hmm. whatever happened. That's what I'm just weird in. Like, I mean, we won't go on too much about this because there's a lot of exciting Supergirl stuff going on here. Like she just fought an invisible monster that was basically just her getting thrown around by the wind <laughs> but uh but yeah like it it seems very foreign to me like like totally just you know having this one guy who was always the poster boy for this thing and known as the creator and he's still around and he's not exactly feeble i wouldn't say like by health standards or whatever mm-hmm. and just him because i mean like they even, I don't know, like, I saw a video the other day with Vanity Fair or somebody where they had him ask questions to J.J. and just, yeah. like, it's it, it's it's very weird. And it, it seems like he is bitter, like, it was, not necessarily that the rights were pried out of his hands, but I think he thought he was going to be more involved and 
the fact that he's not maybe i mean uh, maybe and that's maybe a shame but at the same time I, I don't know it felt like star wars was such an albatross around his neck for a long time that yeah. hopefully he can just enjoy being free of that pressure now and maybe he can finally make these small films he's been talking about for 15 years now that we've still not seen any movement on. He still said in that video the other day, I don't know if you saw that Vanny first said, but he still, when they're asking him questions, he did like a little interview too. And like he said, he, you know, it's fine. He's letting it go. He's an experimental filmmaker and he's going to get back to making experimental films. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've been hearing that for a while. So. <laughs> I've been hearing that since 2005. So. Guillermo del Toro must be producing all those experimental films for him. <laughs> he must. He must. I mean, I guess we can kind of make excuse for Star Wars talk, considering this podcast will be coming out at the apex of the hype of Star Wars Episode Seven. But you know, the final, the final, what I'll say about it, and my attitude of like how, like you know, you're surprised why I have that way. It just, it's hard to see, especially other than Michael Bay probably the least creative guy in Hollywood now be heralded as the creative mastermind behind a new Star Wars film. And also to see like just everything brought back wholesale, but painted a different color. That's going to, you know, you know, I I don't want to keep going on being a fool judging a film I haven't seen, but that's going to have to be a pretty damn good movie with a pretty damn good story to justify, like, how much of the shit they just wholesale lifted from the last, you know. But, but I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I think there's something to be said. You know, I don't have a problem with, with nostalgia glasses when done the right way, you know. And it is, a lot of it is just kind of trying to bring back the iconography, iconography and what we liked about the original Star Wars films as opposed to, you know, what Star Wars became over time. Right. And I mean, the thing, my thing with J.J. Abrams is it's not so necessarily that I think he's like this, the best creative genius in Hollywood. It's that I think he's the right guy to do the first new Star Wars movie because he will just kind of trade in on that iconography and kind of bring it back to a status quo that we're familiar with. And I mean, I think sometimes you've, you've kind of really called it J.J. Star Wars, but I think it kind of bothers me. And I, you know, I don't know if you agree, but I feel like that's really undercutting the fact that it's, it's really Kathleen Kennedy's Star Wars at this point. She's the one kind of spearheading all of it. And I mean, he's even J.J. Abrams is kind of handing it over to the other filmmakers after this. You know, obviously there's gonna they're gonna be trading off some of the story ideas he came up with. But I, I think it's kind of cool that we have a woman like producer, one of the best producers around. I think we'd all agree, who gets to kind of like le- like kind of be in charge of the empire now and, and turn it into something else. And at least they're doing something with it. I mean, whether it was because of the reaction of the prequels or anything, Lucas was just kind of letting the live action aspect of it sit there. You know. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100% with what you just said about Kathleen Kennedy, but you have to admit, at least to us, the fans, the public, it's not presented that way. It's J.J. everything, to the point where he literally gives one-on-one interviews almost every single day to some news outlet just to let little tidbits of the story or character points go out. Like They are really acting like Star Wars is a singular vision with him the way it was with Lucas, which... I don't see how that could even possibly be because it is such a, you know, I mean, shit, look at, look at everybody who's taken over. Ryan Johnson, you know, Gareth Edwards doing the spin-off. It's, it's, it's I, 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 I guess they just needed a poster boy, somebody who was in good graces with nerds at the time, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of push out there. But I just don't, you know, to me, aside from maybe George Lucas, obviously, to me, Star Wars is just such a big thing. It can't be contained by just one person it can't be put in somebody's pocket to be you know piecemeal dished out to the fans like this the build-up to this film is the most disappointing aspect to it to me i'm like 
I don't know, like, like, I feel like even Lucas with the prequels, I feel like he dished enough out to, as a fan, keep you, you know, excited, and this is just like, it's a big secret, just give us your uh, money. See, I don't know, I like, see, I like that, I feel like they're doing, I actually feel like they're promoting this the right way. I, I like the idea of, you know, doing it where you're not giving us everything, and you're showing us just, I mean, because at the end of the day, it's Star Wars, we're all going to see it. It's not like they need to tell me the whole plot in every trailer. I do, unlike you, I actually like the idea of sitting in the theater and not knowing much about it. Yeah, but here, here, here's where I'm getting kind of crusty about that. Was for me personally, and I mean, you might have different, like, whatever, but that J.J. approach didn't work for me with Cloverfield, didn't work for me with Super 8, didn't work for me with Star Trek in the Darkness. Like, not that, not that I just really other than super eight like i kind of like those other movies but like his secret game shit is so obnoxious and it doesn't really to me it doesn't enhance the film that's what i'll say i don't think it enhances but i think there's something to be said for going to sit in a theater and not know what you're about to see like every single part of it you know well i mean i mean what i mean i just uh actually have a like i was looking at right now the new entertainment weekly has a little article about the new film midnight special from jeff nichols who did uh take shelter and mud Mm. And they said here that he wants the he's trying to keep this movie kind of a mystery too. And he said it, uh, it's part of a Spielbergian effort to shroud Midnight Special in a veil of secrecy similar to the great movies of his youth. And he says Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., Starman, they were my inspirations. Very propulsive journeys that work when you can't predict what's going to happen next. So I mean, it is that I think there's still like I think J.J. Abrams is trying to bring yeah. back this idea of that in an age where let's face it, nowadays movies come out and we know every single element of them. And that kind of sucks. I think. I mean, no, I know no. You're okay. I mean, I I agree with that sentiment. I just feel like right now we're talking about the one film franchise that you can't really just box up and do that with. You know what I mean? It just. I don't know. It's 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 left me very like like for what everybody's talking about on on Facebook for me hating it for that. It's not really hate as much as like. I'm pretty much disappointed that I'm not excited about a Star Wars movie because they haven't given me anything to be excited about. I mean, I've seen a few, you know, makeup things and a few, you know, shots and trailers, but it's like, I don't know. Like, when at least going to the prequels, like, Phantom Menace, you knew this was going to be about Darth Vader as a little boy. Attack of the Clones, you knew you were getting the Clone Wars. Revenge of the Sith, you knew you were getting... Uh, Anakin turning into Vader. Like, I don't think those were huge, like, nasty spoilers that ruined the film. But, like, you know, I, I like knowing something so I can be excited. Like, I don't want all the plot points spoiled either, but I like knowing something to be like, okay, this is gonna happen? Oh, shit, I can't wait to see this. Now it's to the point where, like, see, see John Boyega, see Ridley Daisy, or whatever. Like, it's like, okay, but, like, who the fuck are they? Who Like, it's just, I don't know. Too much, too much M Night Shyamalan in my Star Wars for me, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so, getting back to Supergirl, we Star Wars talked through her fighting the invisible monster, where, she, where Supergirl got thrown into the A and W machine. She then tracked down uh, Faye Dunaway. Uh, well, actually, she was trying to have a date with Hart Bachner in the deserted theme park, which made no sense. Then Faye Dunaway came out, and there was like this. Huge battle over bumper cars, which shockingly, like, licensing wasn't what it was now. 
Like, they were in a bumper car thing where every all the bumper cars were actually football players' helmets of NFL teams. I found that yeah. very bizarre. Well, right now, because, like, she's actually carrying Hart Bachner in a bumper car that is, what is it, the Patriots and the yeah. Rams? Yeah, Patriots and the L.A. Rams. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that that's, you know, that's, that's actually this. That whole sequence with the bumper cars where Faye Dunaway makes the bumper cars come to life and they kind of terrorize Hart Bachner. That's the <laughs> sequence I actually have a memory of as mm. like a, you know, like when I, I'm, I get, I must've been four when I saw this, but I, re- <laughs> I love Hart Bachner getting hit in the head with the rock there and just collapsing. But, but I have a memory of seeing that scene as a kid. And I think I actually found it kind of scary as a kid because they were like the way it was shot, you know, it had like a maximum overdrive kind of feel where the bumper cars have faces on them because they're football players. And it's actually done a pretty, you know, for, in a childish terrorizing right. way. You know. and, and lots of sped up footage in that sequence. <laughs> yeah. I do also want to say, though, I, I clocked it because we were talking Star Wars, but that's the moment where, I, like, so at that, because uh, Supergirl's little Fitbit on her wrist goes off telling her that the right. Omega Hedron is round. And that's when she finally goes and realizes that Faye Dunaway has it. That's an hour and 10 minutes into the movie. So an hour and 10 minutes in is when we finally have the hero. The conflict. The conflict began yeah. of the film. Yeah, that's not that's not good. <laughs> and like, just to like, you know, lend an extra air of like people fucking around on this film. Like all these scenes where Faye Dunaway is like, you know, this is kind of expositional, I guess, in a very slow and plotting way. But all these scenes where Faye Dunaway is spitting exposition and whatever shit. Her sidekick, uh, Brenda McCarter, is just sitting here just smoking, chain-smoking her way through these scenes. I mean, it looks like she was just, like, you know, somebody they pulled on the set just to sit here. And just so Faye Dunaway would have somebody to talk to. Yeah, that's what she means. She's clearly just there so Faye Dunaway can give exposition. But I'm sure also, do you think they were like, well, Brenda Vaccaro will be the Ned Beatty of this? Because Lex oh, Luthor yeah, had Ned Beatty. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, Brenda Vaccaro is not Ned Beatty. You know, she's but, just, but, she's not very entertaining. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, Ned Beatty, like, he had so much. I mean, there was a performance there. There was mannerism. Mm-hmm. There, Brenda Vaccaro just sitting there chain-smoking. And just like, yep, yep, tell him, Faye. <sighs> Tell him, yeah, tell him, Faye. Like, it's just, it, it really, like, I don't know, like, her character and the way it's handled, it really makes this film have an air of laziness about it. And here's where our movie really, like, our, our film is just slowed down now to show Supergirl fawning over the boy she likes. Like, yeah, yeah. And when she was, he was uh, unconscious in the uh, bumper car, she was flying, like, taking him to the beach, and she's, like, rubbing her face against his shoulder. Like she's a kitten, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> with its owner. It's it's so <laughs> come on, guys. And, and by the way, like, um, I mean, he was like laying it on thick romance wise when he was in in love with Linda Lee or whatever her fake name is. But like, he never really did anything to her. Like he was never endearing. He was never really that like romantic. He was never really that likable with her. He just was kind of like a hornball, just like. Pulling out some Peppy Le Pew fake romance shit. Mm-hmm. No, she can just like she can watch them wherever they are at all times with this little yeah. magic mirror of hers or whatever. The witchcraft mirror. There was a moment earlier I forgot to point out where Supergirl used her X-ray vision to look through the wall mm-hmm. when uh, when Faye Dunaway like was her car was driving up, mm-hmm. but then like the camera like moved with the car. But through the static wall, like it was again, they just didn't give a shit. They didn't. It's a magic power. Use it however you want. I do really like. This is a great. I I think Helen Slater's performance here is great when he starts asking her questions about her power. And there's a moment where he says something like, "Can you bend steel?" And she kind of like 
deepens her voice and acts like a man for a moment and says yes. And it's just a little fun little it's a little fun moment that it might have just been improv or whatever, but again, it's for her first film, I mean, there's just a natural performance that I really like with her in this. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, like, with this director and, like, what I don't understand really what was going on, like, you have so many things that are mishandled in this film, but -hmm. then you have a couple, like, awesome performances, which I would think if the director was just flat-out horrible, like, he wouldn't allow these actual good performances in. So, like, you know, I wonder, like... Was there a battle with the producers? Well, because yeah, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's a horrible director. I mean, no. like you said, it might have been built in editing, but I think Jaws Two is a decent film. You know, it's a, yeah, it's not bad. For, for what it is. By the way, now that Hart Buckner is shaved, I am totally seeing the Michael Bay aspect yeah. of him. Well, especially now when he's older, like they, like him and Bay have very similar hair. Like it's weird. I'm starting to believe Hart Buckner is Michael Bay. Because he directed those, those, you know, PCU and all that shit. Yeah. Like, you know, like, like maybe he just had to create this dumb persona to get his directing career going, you know? I guess that's the one thing that's like, the one thing I can say about the Supergirl character is she hasn't been mangled yet in terms of, like, Helen Slater's really good. Melissa Benoist is doing a great job of it on the Supergirl show now, she, her performance is actually really reminiscent of Helen Slater. I think she's doing the same kind of bubbly, innocent take on it. And yeah. then, uh, and they had like a kind of a more cool version of her on Smallville played by, uh, I think Laura Vandervoot or something is how you say it. But I even liked that version. So at least, uh, I don't know, at least that character hasn't been treated too poorly in cinema. On that, TV. that was probably the super hottie version of Supergirl, right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. Although to me, Helen Slater is still the super hot version. Oh of super no, no, no. I, I agree. But Laura Vanderbilt, like, you, like every role she's in, like, like they treat her. She's like the female heart box. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with her. She's a good looking uh, yeah. actress, but it's just the, she's always written into roles where she's like overly. Uh, I wouldn't say sexualized, but you know, overly glamorized. Maybe. Did you ever watch Smallville? Goat. No, aside from just catching, like, occasional episodes here and there, like, I never watched it, watched it. It's a show that probably went a little too long. It had ten seasons. But I'll tell you what, like, Tom Welling, I don't think gets enough credit for... I really do think he's one of the best Clark Kents, and, and, you know, he never got to play Superman proper. Right. But I think if he had been given that, uh, he might have been, you know, second to me after Christopher Reeve, because he's really good in that that role. Yeah. He has this, like, kind of genuine earnestness to him, too, that worked really well. I have to say, there's a lot of shows, because there's a lot of shows during a time period where, like, Smallville and shit, where I just really wasn't watching TV, I mean, for a lot of different reasons, like, the DVR shit didn't really exist, Netflix didn't really exist yet, and, like, there's tons of shows I want to go back and discover, but it's just, like, the time and, you know, new shit that's coming out, and movies and sports, it's really hard to, you know, and I'm not a binge watcher by any means, I've been watching the first episode of Arrow for like two years now, so, but I would like to, you know, I, I always like Tom Welling and the little film parts, so. there was some great uh, jump cutting of Hart Bachner there, wouldn't you say, like, disappearing and just popping up in the lair, and like, yeah, in the in chains in the witch's bed yes yeah which kind of begs the question if uh faye dunaway could have done that at any time why did she let him like tumble around and be in that killdozer and all that mm-hmm. now nigel the warlock he gets his comeuppance here in a nice jump cut fashion doesn't he <laughs> i guess he gets turned into an old man 
They turn an old man into an even older man. That's his comeuppance for being an evil character. But it's like an old man in terms of like what an old man looks like when a forty year old plays an old man in like a Benny Hill skit. Right. And somehow old men, uh, like fake old men with makeup, they always have um, uh, lipstick on, which I don't get. Okay, okay, now, like I mean, we you know we're kind of joking with Zack Snyder being you know whatever inspired by that Popeye scene. But this scene where Faye Dunaway's uh, castle or whatever grows up out of the ground, doesn't that eerily seem like the plot of uh, Brian Singer's Superman film where Lex Luthor was using the kryptonite or whatever to make all those giant uh, crater boulder Well, he was trying to make like a new continent, right, for real estate purposes. She's just plopping like a mountain down to basically rule over. But that's like talk about small stakes. Like she wants to rule... This small little town that looks like it consists of two streets. Yeah. You know, doesn't she, couldn't she set her sets, her sights a little higher than this? But just the visual of it, to me, looks exactly like that uh, Brian Singer film. Kind of with those, I don't know what you would call them, those big stalactite things that grew up out of the ocean. Oh, God. See, doesn't it feel like this should be the climax of the film? It does, it does. But we've still got, like, <laughs> like an hour to go. Well, well, not only do we still have an hour to go, but it's like... We should have been at this point 40 minutes ago, probably. Yeah. I mean, we have the, the hero flying into the villain's lair on top of a mountain, and you think, like, oh, here comes the final battle. But nope, there's whole, there's still a whole trip to the Phantom Zone to get through. By the way, Satan just made an appearance in this Yeah, film. Th- there's actually a statue of Satan, because this is dark witchcraft. Which, I don't think, if you made a Supergirl film now, targeted at, like, young girls, young kids... You know, um, I don't think you could get away with Satan being a uh, element of that, <laughs> like whatsoever. Michael Bay, I mean Hart Bachner, he's tied up in a giant fireplace now. A lot of uh, bondage sub themes going on. <laughs> yeah, this is the part where um, uh, this is a callback to Superman Two, right? Yes, indeed. With uh, Faye Dunaway, I, I don't know what the name of that thing is, like how in the Superman films you can place somebody in a, like a cell of like flat glass and make them like flip away like a playing card. I like I think it is just it's like a it's like a fragment of the Phantom Zone or something. That's right. kind of how I take it. I don't know how she knows about it though. Yeah, like, that was really, I mean, when this happened, when I was watching this other night, like, I cle- like I instantly recognized it from Superman 2, and it is a cool effect, even, you know, kind of recycled here, but, like, I totally did not understand how Faye Dunaway really knew about this Kryptonian shit, and how yeah. to manifest it, and how to do whatever, you know? And again, like, we see, like, Supergirl should be really bothered here that the villain has her hands on the Omega Hedron, that she's, yeah. you know, making me to over the Earth... But she's really upset that her boyfriend is kissing her as she exactly. gets sent away to the Phantom Zone. Wait, which, by the way, zombie kissing uh, mm-hmm. Faye Dunaway. It's not like he's, you know, turned evil or anything. Now, this just also made it look like the Phantom Zone is another planet. Because right. the, the glass piece that she was in flew up out of the Earth. And we see it go through space and kind of come to a planet and shatter and she comes out of it. But, I, no, the Phantom Zone is when you're inside that glass. Right. But, oh well, again, you know, what do I know? Yeah, the Phantom Zone is supposed to be like a, a portable version of hell, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah, here she just bashed herself against all these rocks because she jumped up in the air trying to fly, not realizing she only has the power to fly, like, on Earth or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
And she tries to squeeze the rock again here, calling back to earlier in the film, but uh, it just cuts her hand all up. Now, this would have been a cool moment if you could have done, like, a crossover here. Although, I guess it wouldn't have worked timeline-wise. But if she could have encountered, like, Zod or Ursa in here. Something, you know. yeah. Because it is such a... I'm trying to think of a modern-day analogy to, like, whatever. But it but it, it, it almost be like if you made a Robin movie. And then, like, like a... You know, like a... A villain like wanted to blow up a barge exactly the same way the Joker <laughs> wanted to do in Dark Knight. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's just like you're just basically just stealing such a huge element out of something that was in a previous film and just recycling it. But look at just a moment ago with her covered in dirt and screaming to the heavens. I, I want to reach through the TV and kind of console Helen Slater. I want to give her a hug. Yeah, I mean, just you feel bad for like everything she goes through and like. I mean, like, I enjoyed this movie up to this point, like, especially every time she was Supergirl, but most of the Supergirl sequences were, like, really fleeting. But, you know, from that point on, when um, Faye Dunaway made that giant, like, mountain castle, and then this happened, like, this is where I finally, the other night, started feeling like, okay, now we're finally in a, you know, a super whatever film. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because, I don't know, like, even the witch powers, I mean, it just didn't... You know, it just didn't seem like something, you know, that would be in a Superman or Supergirl film. Now, I've got to ask, um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. When did the thing start of um, uh, putting the yellow Superman symbol on the back of the capes? Mm, I can't remember. That came into the comics at a certain point, but... I don't remember if it started with the film, like, first, and then the comics did it, or or what. Because I remember always seeing, like, the little side characters, like Supergirl, Superboy, Superdog, but, mm-hmm. like, have it first, and but eventually Superman had it too, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. This is this scene. This whole sequence is so weird, because now, so, Faye Dunaway as Selena has come down to the town from her little castle on top of the mountain that she's plopped down yeah. and she's basically got stormtroopers that lead her through in a cavalcade i was gonna ask but you, like where the, did they the, come from well, i don't know where they came from and then also the whole town has like go home selena get out of here yeah. selena signs how do they already know about her how, like, yeah how do they know who she is this is like it, it it's this seems like she's been in charge of the town for like months at this point but it's been 24 hours if that yeah the townspeople are actually like protest like peaceful protesting the evil ruler ruling of like from a witch of their small town, like you know what I mean, like, mm-hmm. like why would like wouldn't you be afraid to even go outside knowing she was there when she could just like you know destroy you with some magical powers and shit? Oh, here here comes some uh, nineteen eighty three cardigan, right here. <laughs> it was it almost seems wrong seeing uh, Supergirl's like legs and thighs so gooped up, seems so gross. Oh, Peter O'Toole is going to come back into the picture here. We find out he's been thrown into the Phantom Zone as well. And this is kind of like the, um, this is kind of like the, I would say almost in a way, this is almost like an origin building scene here where like Supergirl has lost all hope and then she inspires him to rise. I just think it's weird that there's a skeleton there because I thought the idea of the Phantom Zone was you're kind of in there forever yeah, just like time doesn't really make you pass away it's just, yeah but then again like we're, we're we're trying to like understand inconsistencies 
in a movie made by people who weren't trying to follow anything whatsoever. Mm. And I gotta say, like, you know, I saw, uh, you know, Peter Tullis Zaltar's silly-ass character at the beginning of the movie, but it's really not till this scene where he's, like, his character starts to really, starts to click, you know? Well, he gets to be, he's getting to be, like, a little goofier here and more fun, and that's where Peter O'Toole kind of excels. And how much, by the way, how much do you think he was trying to bang Helen Slater on set? That's, that's hard to say, that's hard to say. He might have, he might have been more going after old Jimmy Olsen, you don't know. <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia had some undertones there with the desert. Yeah, but Peter O'Toole is quite the, quite the uh, ladies' man in real life. I'm glad to hear that, but just seeing how his... His whole appearance was always so gaunt and like very um, wino like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's you know. I guess I guess his fame would have got him some women though. Hart Bachner now has. You should read a sorry. You should read a book called Hellraisers. Mm-hmm. It's a great book all about uh, Oliver Reed, Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, and Richard Burton. Oh, and just about how insane those guys were talk, during the whole period. Talk about the four horsemen, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I love all those guys. Peter O'Toole, just like you were saying, like even in like a fucked up movie like this, you know, he doesn't give up. You know, even in a fucked up movie like Phantoms, uh, he Thank actually you. gives a really credible and good performance. Yeah, he's always fun. I think even like some like high spirits, you know. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. He's a, I don't know, Peter O'Toole's great. It's, if you were born at a certain point, I think it's it's hard to think of Peter O'Toole as the great actor that other generations might, because right. we really grew up with him in nothing but shit films. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, you know, that he was always good in them, and he's always a fun screen presence. Club Paradise, another one I like. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I've never really seen his classic stuff except for Lawrence of Arabia, which yeah, it's kind of. I feel like I feel like I, I feel bad about that. I feel yeah. like I'm neglecting that we aspect. Need to see of... some more shit. Yeah. What was the movie he made in the early '80s where like he made a robot or some shit? I don't know about that. Wasn't there a movie like made called Creator or something like that? Maybe. I mean, I might be thinking of another older actor of that time. There's one with there's one with Klaus Kinski that's like that called like Android or something. Mm. I think this was more like a um, like a what do you call it like a screwball comedy. Let me look it up, see what movie I'm thinking of. But you're right, like him and Helen Slater do have like actually kind of a nice like. It's really good, yeah. Yeah, their their chemistry here is nice. He really seems like kind of a yeah. He seems like a protective uncle, which is what he is, you know. And or is he supposed to be related to her? I'm not even sure. Is he because that would make him yeah. also Superman's uncle, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. Well, you know, her, their relationship in the beginning of this movie, I couldn't tell if he was supposed to be like just an elder teacher, mischievous elder teacher, like literally like a professor, you know, at mm-hmm. their whatever. Let's see, yeah, creator, nineteen eighty five. An eccentric scientist teaches a student in his own manner while he looks for a way to clone his deceased wife. That's what it was about. I thought it was some robot shit, but yeah, he's trying to bring his dead wife back to life. Peter O'Toole, Vincent Spano, Meryl Hemingway, Virginia Madsen. I'll watch it. Yeah, sounds interesting. I might have to give it a watch. Especially knowing it was about cloning a dead wife and the whole time I thought it was about a fucking robot. Shows, shows shows what I know, fans of the 1980s. Man, it really looks like he prepared, like, 
I'm not just doing shtick here, but it, it really looks like he prepared for this Phantom Zone shit by just staying up for a week and drinking, like, nonstop. Well, I got news for you. He did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how he prepared for every role. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, his his little arc, his little fall from grace in this movie where he literally basically... I mean, they're kind of long scenes, but literally he only has, like, two scenes in this movie. But mm-hmm. he, he creates a character arc, I gotta say, yeah. man. Give, give the man some credit. And he even got them to uh, ride in some uh, space booze here. Apparently, that shit that keeps squirting in their mouths. Yeah, I'm sure on set that was not water for Peter O'Toole. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have to say, you know, as beautiful as she was the whole movie, uh, Helen Slater's Supergirl, you know, almost like the most beautiful Barbie in a Supergirl outfit. And this, uh, in this scene where she's all gooped up and shit and starting to talk serious and try to inspire Peter. She she comes off as like really badass in a feminine kind of way, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, if nothing else like even if she, if I mean but I mean I love the legend of Billie Jean too, but yeah. she didn't get to play Supergirl again, but I really wish she had, had some kind of other like signature character. Yeah. That could have been like a franchise for her. Yeah, this is I mean she she went on to, you know, have appearances and stuff like wasn't it City slickers and stuff. Yeah, she's never been. I mean, it's not like she ever, you know, had that uh, entire drop off out of the out of the world of you know acting or anything. But she just kind of became a supporting character and a very minor one at that, which is too bad. And I think I read that she kind of just acts for fun now. I think she got involved (laughs) in other things in life, you know, and she kind of just acts for fun and stuff. But uh, yeah, she really should have been a you know a leading lady. I thought. She had the chops and the crew. You know, and you know this too, Trevor. There's a lot of people that will talk about certain actors or whatever that are electrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Very full charisma. But uh, for my money, I'll, I'll take Helen Slater as the most electrifying uh, person in uh, at least 80s films or early 80s films. Mm-hmm. And now, that's why, like you said, like I, I, God, I wish we could have had one scene with her and Christopher Reeve because... Yeah. He was so good in that role, and she was so good in this role. I think it would have been kind of magical to see the two of them actually get to do a scene together. And um, i got to ask this. Are, are, when you were a kid, actually, I won't even say when, you, when I was a kid. Up until literally a couple years ago, because I'm fans of both of these actors, I was so stupid. I just assumed from The Legend of Billie Jean that Helen Slater and Christian Slater were related. <laughs> uh, I never really thought that. But. Really? Yeah, because I, I don't like, think it, I think it's one of those things I don't. For some reason, it didn't never even occur to me. But yeah, it's just because Christian Slater was so young, and that was such a kind of like a psychic role. I just figured it because you know sh- weird shit like that would happen a lot. Like uh, at close range, they had both Sean Penn and Chris Penn. Playing I think I felt like Helen Slater seemed too innocent to be related to Christian Slater. Yeah, he w- even though he was like fourteen years old in that movie, he did have a. Little scumbag side. Oh, you could tell he's going to be a Hellraiser. Yeah, with that bleached ass hair. <laughs> it would have been funny if the Legend of Billie Jean, how that little scumbag, the guy that owns the surf shop or whatever, if he would have been selling Supergirl posters. At the <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of cool too. Like, uh, well, I don't know how cool it is, but another weird thing here. Is her Supergirl, like, outfit is, like, all ripped up and shit. But mm-hmm. at the end, when she triumphantly returns to Earth, like, it's it's all brand new. It's clean. It's patched up. Yeah, which is weird. Because, again, 
and if they made this today, she would just totally come in with the ripped up costume because it looks yeah. cooler aesthetically. You know, yeah, you see what she's been does. through. But now this was a. Uh, there's like basically this is getting back to you know, I won't say like bad special effects in terms of what they look like, but this is just like a, a weird concept. Like it seems like they could have come up with something stronger than a blue and red tornado that comes to the Phantom Zone to try to kill them. I like it though. I like the way it looks. Yeah, I mean, it it looks cool. It's just as a concept, it's kind of like, you know, old Hart Wagner eating the popcorn. (laughs) I love that. Dressed like a 70s pimp, eating popcorn, watching. Now, let's let's say in the alternate universe, obviously the movie's not over, but we know Supergirl's going to come back and win. Faye Dunaway looks hot in those little glasses. But, uh, you know, these these two, I'd say probably at this time, probably women in their mid-40s, would they have literally... At their witch's lair, just turn Hart Bachner into like a sex robot for the two of them. Do you think? Oh, I don't know if Faye Dunaway is sharing him with Brenda Vaccaro. Hopefully, she was being nice enough to put spells on some men for her for her roommate. Yeah, somebody, but, but she didn't even throw old Nigel to Brenda Vaccaro though. She just yeah. totally, you know. And, and and like this part with these little glowing orbs that are like knocking them down the uh, mountain or whatever. Like this special effect, and then the couple with the swirly tornado i started really getting like a poltergeist vibe right here yeah it's just i don't know this is weird this is what super see supergirl 2 should have been the search for zaltar you know that actually would have been kind of cool in all honesty i mean obviously it didn't do the business to whatever but i wonder like what what this film supergirl would have really had to do um, at the box office to garner a sequel, you know what I mean? I just, I mean, I think the more interesting question is, what did it need to do to be a bigger hit? You know, like, was it yeah. just that people weren't ready for a female superhero? I don't really remember what the marketing was like. Yeah. Was it just the idea that people knew Christopher Reeve wasn't in it, so nobody took it seriously? You know, how much would him would him being in it have helped the box office? I don't know. There's a lot of what ifs, you know. But what did what could have made Supergirl a better a, a bigger deal? I mean, yeah. obviously, obviously, quality has something to do with it. Oh, know? yeah. I mean, I, I think definitely there were some mistakes with the narrative of this film that kind of, you know, led to the bad reviews, which nowadays I don't think bad reviews really hurt you that much, but a bad reviews would kill, a, you know, bad reputation would kill. There's a Zoltar going out old Hans Gruber style there, swirling <laughs> <laughs> away. Actually, it kind of reminds me more of... Um, no, Van Helsing getting sucked oh. into the portal at Monster Squad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That is what it is. But, I mean, it's hard for us to know what the kind of the temperature of the room was at the time. But I'm guessing the bad reviews, coupled with the fact that this was a spinoff of a franchise who the original franchise was spinning off of, Superman... That was kind of damaged goods at the time after that Richard Pryor one. Yeah. I mean, I I know I've seen a lot of blame placed on, oh, Helen Slater was a nobody. But, I mean, Christopher Reeve was a nobody when Superman came out. And you had Peter O'Toole and Faye Dunaway. I mean. And that was kind of the thinking at the time for when you're trying to make these, uh, you know, Star Wars, Superman. Like, if you're trying to make somebody into a character, like, you wanted an unknown at the time. Yeah. I don't know if you saw on, like, Wikipedia, the Saul Kinds later on said, well, we should have... Helen Slater was wrong. We should have gone with Brooke Shields. But yeah, I, think I that's... saw that. They're, this would have been so fucking horrible with Brooke Shields. I'm sorry. Because, yeah. in all honesty, this is actually a... I hate to say it because I, I think we're probably going to have some fans of this film hunt down this commentary and they'll probably think we're dicks for saying this. 
But this is a bad film propped up by a couple really good performances, I think. Oh, that's what it is. I mean, the reason I the reason I like this film, the reason I own it, is because of Helen Slater. Yeah. I mean, it's there's a couple other elements I like. Like I said, it's a fun, cheesy film to watch. I mean, it's a little more tedious than even some of those, you know, because like, usually I like my bad movies to be about 90 minutes. But, I mean, in the right mindset, you can get into some, the cornballness of some of the aspects. Like, the, the now, like I said, it was scary as a kid, but the whole thing with the bumper cars is kind of goofy and fun, you know, and... Some of the, this this whole climax is just kind of so dumb. It's fun, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, it, at the end of the day, this movie is all about Helen Slater as Supergirl. Yeah, I really love how you know those people, her friends, are being held captive in those balls suspended from the <laughs> ceiling. When those balls drop to the ground, that was some great lingering shots of some obvious dummies <laughs> in those balls, which like you know people like oh like whatever you know this is a failure. Well, if this movie is such a failure, why did Joel Schumacher rip that off for the end of uh, Batman Forever, a very high-grossing DC Comics film, just ten years later? Because if you remember, that climax of that film was Nicole Kidman in a ball just like that, with the Riddler holding court in his lair like that. Exactly the same. Here we do get a climax, though, where, and I think this is what you told me earlier, we get a climax where Supergirl doesn't even really get to be very Supergirl-ish no. in the climax. We don't see her utilize a lot of her powers. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's a lot going on, effects-wise, but it's, well, even Satan's about to attack her. Look at that. Yeah, it's, I think that's kind of the, uh, I mean, you could you could have built a, um, a better climax off of uh, her fighting all the stormtroopers, really. Mm-hmm. That all of a sudden disappeared, but like, yeah, it really is. And that was kind of the problems with the, you know, Christopher Reeve, oh, Brenda Vaccaro getting pulled on the wire trying to cover her tits up before they popped yeah. up. That was but, a little Sam Raimi moment there. For yeah, you. it really was. But, um, but yeah, it was like, that's kind of the problem with the Christopher Reeve ones. Like, you can't really have a fight between Christopher Reeve and fucking Lex Luthor. Yeah. It was like the kind of the same thing here. Like, you couldn't. But the thing is, here you could have, because you could have had Faye Dunaway use some kind of spell Man, to make herself true. powerful. Yeah. That is true. But it's just, uh, yeah. Or at the very least, she could have conjured, and she kind of does, you know, the kaiju comes back here, but she could have conjured, like, a lot more things to come to life and, mm-hmm. you know, fight Supergirl. It's very weird. But I think, I think now, you know, with these type of big popcorn films that, like, you would make now, I think the directors are much more aware about the pace and the tension of the build of the finale. Whereas I feel like back then, because people were jerking off so hard on special effects, in a way, weird way, almost, you know, like, now people jerk off on you can just do anything with CGI. I think they just thought back then, like, a good finale was just a special effects-laden finale. Not necessarily one that was paced well, exciting, whatever. Just keep throwing all these effects out. All right, since Bird ain't here, I'm going to ask you, Trev, let's rate this kaiju. Where do you I, I like him. I think it's I think it's cool looking. I like that it's, you know, they're practical and yeah. just this kind of big creature. It's, you know, they keep it in shadow and mist enough that you don't get to see, like, the obvious flaws of it. Yeah, I don't really know what's happening with Supergirl here. She's getting stretched into... Two dimension or something? I don't know. What's... Yeah, she's getting kind of getting flattened back, almost Phantom Zone style. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I it's like I'm watching this climax with no sound on, and just like from a, this, a pure aesthetic of visuals and how cornball but fun it is, it seems to me like this is a movie that 
should have the same kind of cult following today that something like Masters of the Universe has or something. Right, right. I the problem that. is just that it's got too much plotting stuff in the middle. Like that 90-minute cut, yeah. if it was still around, would probably have that kind of following, I think. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I think this is just... you Like, even though it has the elements of that type of movie, you can't throw this on for two hours and five minutes and drink beers with your buddies. You know what I mean? The kaiju let her go. Some good reverse acting of her flipping down to the floor there. Yeah, Hart Bachner, apparently the power of the tennis ball or whatever was in this weird, like, kind of goat statue. Hart Bachner covered it up, and then all of a sudden, uh, Faye Dunaway had no more powers. Now, I don't understand. Why did Supergirl become so miniature there? When she yeah, that was. I don't know if that was just a mistake in terms of the effect. Right, right. Like, it looked like she re- literally shrank down, and people aren't following home. Uh, with the DVD, it looked like she literally shrank down to like Mighty Mouse size and just swirled around uh, Faye Dunaway and then made a tornado so Faye Dunaway got um, thrown into the same whatever dimension as the uh, uh, kaiju there. Brenda Vaccaro as well, which I, I don't think that's really that warranted. She didn't do that much bad shit. She shouldn't she's get... like this, she's the she's the assistant in Jurassic World of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that you know what? That's actually a great analogy. I feel like, like uh, Nigel has just kind of turned into a good guy at this point. Yeah, like I, which I don't really see. If you're going to throw Bruno Vaccaro in there, you got to throw Nigel in there too because he was plotting all the evil shit. He just mm-hmm. got turned on by uh, Faye Dunaway, you know? It doesn't really make him good. He never really did anything, you know, to stop this later on. Hans, baby, I got this tennis ball for you. <laughs> It's, it's weird how Supergirl looks at the uh, holocron or hologram or whatever it's called, like with such <laughs> such love once she recovers it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. More love than she has for Hart Bachner. Yeah. And this is what I mean about this not really being an origin, like whatever is you know she gets it back, and then she's like, "I gotta go return this where it belongs." Like it's not really like, "Okay, I gotta put this somewhere safe and stay here on Earth." Like she can go back to her home space station thing, right? Yeah, she just kind of pieces out. Like, see ya. I'll, yeah. I'll... I don't like the that's look. the one thing is it, it doesn't the film doesn't even feel like it's setting up a sequel. Right. It's just kind of like, oh, I'll, I'm, I'm out of here now. Yeah, even Hart Bachner's like, oh, okay, go, yep, see ya. That is, I guess that is kind of what's lacking from this as a Superman movie. You know, yeah, I know yeah. it's Supergirl, but I mean, the idea the idea of Supergirl and what they're doing really well on the TV show right now is the idea of, you know, a, a relative of Superman who decides to carry his mantle as well and try to live up to that image and also be a hero on Earth. Mm. But the thing is, like, that's not really the case in this film. She doesn't come to Earth to be a hero. She came here just to get that thing back for her city and take it back home. Right. And it's never really presented like she has any interest in, in being a protector of us or, you know, being a superhero. Because here she's just like, I'm done now. I'll leave. Well, not only that, but it's like, um, obviously that, you know, that that power source or whatever that, that MacGuffin was fell into the wrong hands of Faye Dunaway. But it also feels more like she really just wanted to recover it to make up for her own personal fuck up of letting it go in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of well. They all, well, they did say though too that like Argo City would die after a couple of days without it. Oh, okay, okay, I missed that part because it is their main. No, I, why does she have to go back into the water? And that's where she came out. Of. It's like she's almost like a King Neptune person or Atlantis person. <laughs> so inner space is in the ocean. I'm assuming that it, inner space is somewhere in the uh, like inner core of the Earth or somewhere. 
But it, but we're looking at it right now. It almost looks like uh, the space station is like in the water. That was weird. Huh. Very strange. And here we get some more non-3D 3D credits. <laughs> Trying to super this thing up. Again, I know it sounds like we're extremely harsh on this movie, but there's there's a lot. There really is a lot to like in this movie. But holy shit, you got to wade through a lot of garbage to get through it. You know? Yeah, it's just a movie that it's a movie that makes mistakes so often. Like it's it's got all these elements that could have made a really fun, well more way more respected movie, but it just keeps stumbling over and over and over again. I think they just, the problem with this movie was they just never had a focused narrative. Like, it just was, like, plotting and plotting. Until, like, the last 20 minutes. I would say, like, when she gets thrown in the Phantom Zone, you know, like, and then the comeback to fight Faye Dunaway, then the film kind of, you know, wakes up and gets going to where it needs to get going, even if it's in a somewhat clumsy way. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, there was just too much, uh, I don't know. One thing I will say for it is that for the you know for as much as I made fun of earlier about how it just turns into two women fighting over a boy, at the end she just kind of says like you know what I don't need you I'm yeah I'm out of here. it was like I don't know it was it was weird how that how that guy really didn't fucking matter at all in the end you know what I mean mm-hmm. and not only not only that okay like when he when the spell was like broken. Like, he really didn't even like her anymore either, honestly. Yeah, I know. That's the thing is there's no real romance in this. Like, any yeah. element of romance is just based on the fact that he had a spell on him that made him fall right. in love with her. Like, like you could, like if you remade this film, you could almost, um, like, have it be, like, a gay character put on the spell to, like, women, and then as soon as it's over with, he just, you know, he's back to having no interest, you know? That probably would be, like, the hip and edgy, like, 2015 version of the story. <laughs> I, bet, I bet probably half the budget went to these credits, because, damn. Standby Carpenters getting 3D credit treatment. I do like the, like, I like how the credits kind of, as they're coming towards you, you can't read the ones behind the other ones, so they get a little right. closer. Yeah. I actually wouldn't mind putting this DVD on my 3D TV and converting this into 3D and seeing how much of a seizure it gives me. Wait, can you do that? Can you convert a 2D movie into 3D? Yeah. There's actually, um, most 3D movie, my 3D movie, uh, sorry, my 3D TV does it, but some uh, Blu-ray players do it as well. Of course, you have to have a 3D TV, but, uh, yeah. How does that, how, how well does it actually work? You know, like, what... You know what, like, if you read, like, TV reviews, they all say it sucks, but it's, like, really that thing where, like, it actually works, shockingly enough, but it's really hit and miss. If you throw in, like, a new movie with modern kinetic in- editing and shit, it, it really just kind of looks, like, strange and, like, whatever. Yeah. But if you throw in, like, I've found, even just with regular DVDs, um, if you throw in something from the 80s or 70s with, like, static shots... But with, you know, depth in the background, it will look 3D. Like, uh, one of my favorite movies to kind of watch like that is, um, is, uh, actually Blood Simple, believe it or not. That looks really good converted into 3D. Well, you know, like they say, for 3D to work, shots have to last at least four seconds, I think. And that's why it always works with older movies, you know? Yeah. And that's why, um... 
I don't know, not that anyone cares, but no. that's why the action scenes got much better in Transformers 3, because right. it kind of, the 3D forced Michael Bay to not edit the way he usually does. Yeah, I heard and, he and, and, about having to do that, too. And it, yeah, but that's crazy, because it's like, it made his sequences better. Like, I'll stand by the final half hour of Transformers 3, the, the Battle of Chicago. Yeah, even if it's you like watch a, it's in a, 2D, it's better. It's an amazing action sequence, however you feel about the plot of the movie, you know, and it's, yeah, but he had to hold on to his visuals longer than he normally does, whereas Transformers 2, that final battle is just a nightmare where you can't tell what the hell is going on. Yeah, it's, it's funny that the product placement never stopped at the end there, um, the uh, credits, they had the the cashier parentheses for Popeyes, the waitress for Popeyes, like, there was no waitress, they're just trying to get extra credits in there for Popeyes. Filmed in Panavision. I have to say though, the you know these old school uh, green screen effects, whatever, um, they they hold up. They're interesting. Like, even if they're not a hundred percent convincing, I mean, there was a handful of shots in here that looked super phony. Don't get me wrong, but like in general, I think they look more interesting than the stuff that's being done now. Mm. Dolby Stereo and selected theaters. Ooh. So if you had to predict, not that I'm sure you even have a dog in this fight, but do you think we see Supergirl get another movie? Or, I mean, does the fact that there's a show now put the kibosh on that? It's really weird, right? Because they're doing, like, the Flash movie. Yeah, that's but it's completely not... separate than the show, right? Right, but it's, but still the same character, but a different actor playing him. <laughs> which, 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 when it comes time to make the uh, Flash movie, I want to see if they really stand by behind that supposed Ezra Miller casting which I don't get at all for that role. Yeah. But um, I think there's a chance because of Supergirl movie because, you know, they're saying the movie universes are separate than the TV universes, and a lot of people have huge problems with that, and I understand why. But I was going to ask you during the, you know, the movie, actually the credits are still going on in this damn movie, so we can still talk about it. But um, wasn't there a supposed nod to Supergirl in the uh, Man of Steel movie? Because didn't he find that fake Fortress of Solitude that had a uh, life pod that was empty. I thought that was supposed to be Supergirl's pod that she got. It was, of. yeah. And that's actually, it's clarified more. And they did like a comic book tie-in that actually shows that that was Supergirl that came out. And she's been on Earth this whole time, which is actually a, a bizarre reversal of the, the, the typical Supergirl story now, which is that she was originally sent to Earth to take care of him. Because, you know, he was sent as an infant. Right. And she was sent as a teen, but her pod got kind of stuck in space, and so... Yeah, it was like a Rip Van Winkle type situation. Yeah, so she got to Earth way too late, and he was already growing up and become Superman, and so that's why she's kind of... In the comics now, she's kind of got a chip on her shoulder, which I like. It's like the idea of... She's this teenage girl who came here thinking she was going to be the protector, and now her cousin's like, I don't even... Not only do I not need you, I'm the most important, you know, superhero on Earth. And then she's trying to, like, live up to that, but kind of bitter about it. Um... So yeah, the idea that she's actually in the in this Zack Snyder universe that she's been around forever, I don't know. I don't even know how they would approach that. But well, to be fair, there's like a million characters coming out in Dawn of Justice. Yeah. So, so I mean, maybe there will be room for her in the actual Justice League movie later on because like if Dawn of Justice works, just you know, as a commercial success, I think they're going to like take the Avengers approach and be like, more characters, the better. So I think that's probably how she'll get shoehorned. And I don't know why, but DC really wants to, like, introduce all these characters in a big team-up movie and then do spinoffs. Or I just feel like the Marvel way of doing the individual movies, then the big spin-off team-up is better. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. 
It seems like everything Marvel does, DC does the opposite. But I would recommend to people, if you really want a good version of Supergirl, you know, check out the TV show. Or there was a couple animated Superman films, those straight-to-DVD ones. Um, Batman, Superman, Apocalypse, and Superman Unbound. Or, maybe, uh, yeah, I think that's what it's called. But those, are both, those are both really good Supergirl stories. And then if you want to see a really good Helen Slater movie, right. watch Supergirl. Yeah. Which I gotta say, it's kind of a shame that the animation is so bad on those directed DVD movies because the stories are good. Oh, I think some. I don't. I I think some of them are better than others in terms of the yeah. animation. I don't know how many of you have seen. They started off really shaky. Yeah, they like, actually they got pretty good for a while, and now I feel like they're kind of going back to being crappy because I feel like they've gotten lazy. Yeah, like there's some. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Wonder Woman one. No, I, I've seen some of the Superman ones that, that, believe it or not, like, they actually play them on, like, just the movie channel sometimes. Yeah. And, like, the ones I've seen, like, they literally look like Flash animation, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've seen better ones. The one, if Basically, any of the ones that are directed by Lauren Montgomery, I would I would recommend in terms of just the animation alone. She's a great animation director. And uh, she directed Wonder Woman. I, I believe she directed Green Lantern First Flight, which was a way better Green Lantern origin movie than the Ryan Reynolds movie. Um, so yeah, I like the ones that she directs. I'll have to check them out. I know sometimes they have a bunch of them on Netflix, but mm-hmm. I mean, there's other way I can just always rent the DVDs as well, but yeah, I, I've actually, you know, kind of the build, the Star Wars, whatever I've been, I've re, you know, gone back cause there were some seasons I missed, but I'm watching the Clone Wars again. I'm starting to get back into, uh, you know, these, uh, these, uh, kind of, I don't know what you call them, shorter serialized cartoons, mm-hmm. you know? Like, like I kind of rather just watch a um, movie, you know, or not movie, but either a TV show or, yeah, like a movie, like the direct-to-video ones, because they're all short. They're like 80 minutes. Yeah, sometimes that's like kind of to their detriment, because they're all they're actually all 70 minutes, and yeah. sometimes the story feels like it needs longer than that. But but, but they just wanted to make it more bite-sized for kids, I guess. It's weird. I've never understood why they why they like they enforce that 70-minute limit on them. Like, I know it's part of it's to have so it can be 90 minutes when they show it on Cartoon Network or whatever. But, I mean, it's a DVD release. You can do whatever the hell you want yeah. and, cut, and cut it down for TV. Unless it's just literally just an animation budget type of cheapness move. But, uh, yeah, I'm starting to get into those more than, um, you know, I have to be honest because, like, I really got out of animated films for a long time with the, um, the you know, the CGI Pixar type releases because I felt like, you know, everything, you know, car- like, I basically just got tired of cartoons having super serious, super adult, like, whatever. So, like, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of getting a little bit more back into cartoons. But, you know, the superhero shit really kind of helps, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say as we're wrapping up that if we're going to, if this is 80s movie Graveyard and we're going to talk about Supergirl, we should talk about kind of the the biggest lasting legacy of Supergirl is the fact that because it bombed, that's actually what led to the Salkinds finally just selling Superman to Golan Globus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I would be happy to uh, really cover. Well, yeah, I would be happy to cover that canon Superman film. Oh, I would. If you, if, if you decide to, I will totally join in because that is another fascinating movie to talk about. You, you heard it here, from folks. I'm guaranteeing at some point in 2016, Superman for the Quest for Peace. A movie that I've actually enjoyed over the years. But I have not seen it in a long time, so I'm curious what, what I'll think of it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, through the research of this, why you know uh, Christopher turned down the cameo and all this was I heard I heard the the reason he only reason he came back to uh, 
a quest for peace was uh, they let him have a hand in the storyline and let it be about environmental issues, which he cared about with the nuclear weapons and shit. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so in the interest of, uh, you know, time and brevity here, I hope you enjoyed uh, watching and listening to this film with us. If you're a hardcore fan of this movie, because a lot of our downloads come from people who are just fans of one particular movie, they get that commentary. And uh, if you're a hardcore fan of Supergirl, I apologize if you love it, if it's your favorite movie of your youth, I love it. But we actually like it a lot, too. We Yeah, I like it. It just, it just we, we cannot watch it and not marvel at the insane... Well, if nothing else, this is like, it's a, it's a debate you, like, our friends do see us have on, online a lot. Mm-hmm. But if nothing else, this is proof that you can like a movie and acknowledge how kind of, you know, right. flawed it is, too, you right. know? This is a film full of flaws, but there's enough in it that I still enjoy it. And, and honestly, like, it's full of flaws. There's entire sections of this movie that are really bad. But I wouldn't even call, go as far to call it a guilty pleasure because the stuff we, you know, we like, we're kind of on the same page with what we like with this film. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, you know, Helen Slater, and I, I just I think it's worth defending. Like, whereas a guilty pleasure, you just know that every second of it is shit, but you like it anyway, you know? Right. I mean, I feel I feel the same way about Superman three. Like, I genuinely enjoy that film, and I don't feel like I'm defending it as like, oh no, it's so bad, it's good. It's like, no, there's what I like about it actually does work for me. Right, and I guess that's what, in all honesty, you know, that's a big reason why uh, I started this podcast because you know, there's a lot of stuff that you know we feel like from our youth like our classic status even though they're really not and that's what this this whole show is about is bringing that shit back and then giving it one last one last ride as vin diesel would say <laughs> 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 oh man Imagine, which one of which one of us is like the cgi paul walker that yeah, pulls up and drives sh- off <laughs> hey trevor how about we give supergirl one last ride for family's <laughs> sake cal al Jor-El. And now Carol. <laughs> That's family. <laughs> All right, everybody, signing off from 1980s Movie Graveyard. Trevor, thank you for joining me. I look yeah, forward no problem, to man. your next appearance, as always. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks, man. All right, everybody. Keep it 80s out there. <laughs>